violence per se has never been my bag, except personally. But in pictures, as and I would like to uh, try to at least portray it on screen as it is. I failed, and I've succeeded. And, uh, but of all those pictures you talk about, basically our morality plays. I've broken a lot of fences and noses. I just do the uh, best kind of a job I know how. And, uh, but there are certain people who are filmmakers, and there are certain people who are not. That's all. Prohibition is over. You can listen to your favorite podcast again. It's The Good, The Pod, and The Ugly, Season 10, or Season X, like Fast X. Uh, Side Hustle or Hyphenauts, we are talking all season long about people, mostly actors, who dip their toe in directing. Um, This week, we are covering Kevin Costner. I am joined by my co-host, Thomas. And I am joined by my co-host, Ken, who you just heard. And this week, we're both joined by Eric. Hello, Eric. Welcome back. Oh, thanks, guys. It's good to be back. Yeah, you were just here a while ago. Yeah. Um, So the two movies we're doing for Costner. um, So we decided on The Untouchables for actor. And naturally, for director, (laughs) everybody's favorite film. The Postman. So when we did the spreadsheet for this of the the actors and the pairings as director, uh, what did I write in the note for The Postman? I think you postman. said, or the pod is over. Yes. I, I You had an ultimatum, uh, which I don't know if I'd otherwise, not to spoil anything, uh, there'll be plenty <laughs> of spoilers for The Postman, both the Bryn book and the adaptation by Costner. Um not to spoil anything by the end of the podcast, but uh, I would have not finished the film by any stretch if it wasn't for this podcast. Euphemistically, I would have been happy to finish it multiple times, but um, I watched I watched the whole thing for the you second mean, time. Jerk in my it life. off? No, come on! Oh, man. finish it like put it down like a horse, like Mortal Kombat. Bro- finish it. Oh, yes. yeah. Hey, yeah. you have your Mortal Kombat buddy on, uh, and we want to talk a little bit about Costner. Uh, so, Eric, yes, tell sir. us about this this Kevin Costner guy. <laughs> well, you know, I actually um, like Kevin Costner quite a bit. Um, you know, he's sort of, he filled that everyman role, I think. The first time that I became aware of, was, aware of Costner was, I think, in Silverado. Um, and now this is also the VHS 80. So, I mean, there were movies like Fandango that he appeared in in 85. And that was one that people had done um, because his big claim to, <laughs> claim to fame uh, prior to, to that was the big chill in 1983. Um, he was the dead guy. He was. People may not remember him in the big chill because any flashback scenes with him were cut out. And he's just a guy laying in the coffin. Um <laughs> That they're all gathering to uh, to remember, but Silverado, I think, was the first time that I really took notice of him, and then American Flyers, which was about um, 
bike racers, like 10 speed bike racers who didn't. That was a good movie. Yeah, it actually right. is. Yeah, it's actually yeah. a good movie. And where the he's pissed off because they didn't get to go to the Summer Olympics that he'd been training for his entire life for. Um, and then he goes on this amazing run um, around that time. So off of Silverado and American Flyers, he does The Untouchables, which we're going to talk about. No Way Out, Bull Durham, Field of Dreams, which were all huge, huge hits. And this is just his star rising, you know, and then you can almost, um, you know, the, the opening of the player when everybody is coming in to pitch a movie and every one of those guys says, yeah, we need somebody really, really, you know, dangerous, like uh, Bruce Willis, you know, you can kind of picture that's what's going on in Hollywood at this time. Like everybody who's coming in to pitch a movie. Yeah, this would be perfect for Kevin Costner. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> so because he's just landing in some really great movies. Uh, then, of course, you get to 1990 when he decides to be a director and dance with wolves um, and producer and producer. And it's a huge hit and Oscar, you know, tons of Oscars. And then he goes into, you know, and that puts us, you know, at 1990 and then 1991. He has another string of hits, uh, you know, Robin Hood, JFK, The Bodyguard, Perfect World. And then you get to like Wyatt Earp. And then you run into Waterworld, Tin Cup, and the fucking Postman. <laughs> and then that that's sort of the ceiling right there. It's kind of like, you know, Waterworld, which I think people have sort of um, reassessed. I'm like, yeah, it's actually not a bad movie. Because um, it's not. It's fun. <clears throat> um, it's just really expensive fun. I think the budget was $175 million for that sucker. And it's weird. It, it eventually... I mean, it did make its money back. It, it did, uh, yeah, yeah. And a lot well, I mean, of not, it didn't double or anything, but you know, it it one x itself. <laughs> well, well, what they what they discovered, you know, is that you know, Jaws was shot in you know in like seventy five, um, you know, and that even in nineteen ninety five, shooting on the water is really fucking difficult and really fucking expensive. <laughs> so that's why they had a lot of budget overruns on there. Um, and it wasn't just Bowser. No, well, and the, and, the, <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, is that so the only reason he agreed to do Waterworld, from my understanding, and this is back when Premier Magazine was still a thing, um, you know, they did some write ups on it, is that he was good friends with Kevin Reynolds, who directed Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And Kevin Reynolds wanted to do Waterworld, but he couldn't get the studio to sign off on it until he got Kevin Costner to agree to do it. And then I remember some scuttlebutt that the closer they got to Waterworld, Kevin tried to back out of it a little bit and then uh wait, wait which Kevin? Costner. Kevin Costner? Costner, yeah. Costner okay. there were some rumblings that Costner was trying to get out of the movie, and then Reynolds just played the friend card really, really hard. So because um, he was embarrassed that he couldn't swim, probably. <laughs> he didn't want to tell anybody. So uh so that's some of the scuttlebutt I remember about that. And then um and then you eventually get to your current Kevin Costner, who, you know, for the past five seasons has been sort of reintroduced on uh, Yellowstone, which I think is a very, very good show. Um, and I think, you know, I, I see, I see similarities between him and Clint Eastwood a little bit. It's just sort of like these icons. Um, and I think, you know, Costner is probably sort of a lighter version of that. I don't think he's ever going to have the filmography Eastwood um, has, but at the same time, I think he, he's in that same mold to a certain extent. Um, well, here, here's really a question I had. Uh, rewatching these and trying to, uh, because I mean, Dances with the Wolves was seminal. I was right, like right at the right age when that came out. Um, uh, and yeah, I, I was a young teen as uh, during that, that hot streak you're, you, you talked about. Um, does he, unlike like 
definitely Eastwood has a persona. And sometimes mm-hmm. it even seems like Eastwood's only playing Eastwood. Would you say that's true for Costner? No, no. I think Costner. Um, I think I actually, he- I actually wrote down. I wrote this down when I was I was watching The Postman, and I I, I figured there are three different Costners. There's the Costner that is the the uh, taciturn Gary Cooper type, mm-hmm. uh, straight arrow like we see in um, Untouchables. There is the uh, aw shucks aw geez Jimmy Stewart. Kevin Costner, which he he did in Dance with Wolves and unfortunately does in The Postman. And then there's kind of the the smirking outsider that you see in the Bull Durham's, um, which is kind of Paul Newman. Yeah. So I think there there are three three Costners and the Yellowstone one is really the the Gary Cooper Costner. And um I, I think it was really it's really effective for him in the TV show, the first season anyway. I didn't watch the rest of it. Yeah, I would argue that you kind of get all three in the postman, but we don't need Eric around to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I'll have something to do um, around that time. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite Costner? Because I think my favorite is probably him in body in the Bodyguard. That's I think that's, that's Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper yeah. with just a hint of Paul Newman. <laughs> Yeah, I would agree. I think um, that bodyguard, Kevin Costner, he's the guy. He's there to do a job. He's there to do it right. Um, He's going to do it the, you know, the um, be there. Uh, And uh, same thing. I think he kind of plays that in uh, Yellowstone as well, like like Ken mentioned. I think those are probably my two favorite. I like how a lot of it sort of all gets woven together in Yellowstone, I think. a little more revenge and bodyguard kind of combined together, um, which is a, another great movie that he did. Um, the Tony Scott. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably my favorite Costner. The Field of Dreams, Al Shexi, Kevin, Con- definitely not my not my favorite Costner. Even though he does my well. cup of tea, and yeah. he made a lot of money off of it too. Oh yeah, he did. So, um, so not my favorite Kevin Costner. Um, although I will say he does it well. He definitely nails that. Um, but I think I think I like the more the outsider Gary Cooper type uh, type Costner. Yeah. Cool. What about and you, Thomas? Oh, I just said the the bodyguards probably my favorite. Okay. So I like I come like serious. I was also while you guys were talking, trying to think if I've ever seen his ass on a film, and I don't think I have. Maybe Bill Durham. Yeah, that's oh, that's right. That's right. Okay, thank yeah. you. And I was about to say because it, it, it's like that period where you just had to show a little bit of man ass as a leading star. It seems. Yeah, or have a, a body period. double like Mel Gibson. Oh, okay. so, what, so, so what Kevin Costner is JFK Kevin Costner then? I'm going to have to go with the Gary Cooper Kevin Costner. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, that's yeah. about right. Because it's not, it's not um, you know, it's definitely not the Jimmy Stewart type Kevin Costner. No. Like, like a Mr. Smith goes to Washington type thing at all. No, I'm, I'm so. not doing the accent. I'm not doing the voice. <laughs> He tried to try to bait him. Try to bait him. Uh, <laughs> no, he's like he's got like this bulldog intensity in those yeah. things. Whenever he's like yeah. he is the professional, and there's like a, uh, just a hint of he might be outside of his league at times, or a little bit of self doubt, uh, which gives him a humanizing quality, kind of like Keanu Reeves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that he's in over his head, you know, or that he feels like the entire system working against him. So whereas, you know, Clint Eastwood um, icon is like he's always working against the system. And this is one where um, the Kevin Costner character in JFK kind of realizes that the system is corrupt. 
and that there's something much larger going on. So there's like this, so sort of this matching disillusionment that when JFK was assassinated, there was like this American disillusionment that it could happen here. Um, mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, it's his character is also going through the same disillusionment uh, when he realizes that the system that he's lived in and worked in and protected and defended and worked with his entire life also may be pretty friggin' corrupt. And so I think, I think he nails that one yeah, as well. And it seems like that is part of the untouchables. So uh-huh. good segue. Yeah, excellent segue. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And usually you don't have to call it out. You just go straight into it, but I'm not going to go <laughs> there. I'm going to instead talk about what both of these films have in common. Oh, okay. Is yeah. it a long list? It's not a long list, is it? It's uh, it surprisingly longer than I was expecting. So okay. they both came out in years ending in seven. I'm not stretching. I'm not reaching. It's just like <laughs> low hanging fruit. They both came out in years ending in seven. They have a legal technicality, which takes down the nemesis. Oh, shit. They're both based on books. They both have scenes taking place on bridges. They both have characters who get hung from a rope or hang from a rope. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Both have horses ridden into battle that are gunfights. Wow. Both have slow-mo fight scenes. Both uh, ha- uh, um, have problematic handling of corpses to send a message. Holy shit. Right? And in both of them, Costner has a baby born. During the course of the story. Yes. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty good. It's almost the same film. Yeah, he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't cuckold anybody in Untouchables, but um we'll talk about that with the postman. <laughs> um, uh, so the 87's The Untouchables, yep. directed yeah. by Brian De Palma in his um his best era of being a big studio director who made big studio movies and some of them were successful. Yeah. That's good that you clarify. Cause there is a 2002 corn album <laughs> called untouchables. Oh, and it, um, so there was a TV show, obviously the TV show with um, untouchable un- unsolved mysteries guy where he played Elliot Ness and then art Linson, when they were going to want to make a movie, they didn't want to base it necessarily on the book or the, the TV show. So, um, they forged their own path, and uh, was it Wendy Wasserstein gave the original stab at, at this script? Um, and then Mamet came in, and um, most of what he wrote for his first draft is is in the film. There are obviously some big changes that were made in certain sequences. Um, and he wrote an extra scene for De Niro and was not available for rewrites when they were filming because he was working on House of Cards, um, House of Games. What was it called? The movie he made with Joe Mantegna? House of yeah, Cards? Yeah, House of Games. Or is House of Games a TV show? No, Wait a minute. House, House of Cards is a TV show. Okay, okay, thank you. Yeah, and it was, uh, they, they upped the budget when they after they started, which doesn't happen very often, um, as crack a crew uh, from director of photography to um, production design to Ennio Morricone doing the music. Uh, just a top-tier a-list Hollywood movie, and they always liked Costner because of his Gary Cooperness. But obviously, it being a big Hollywood movie, you could go into the weeds, and every actor of an age was considered both for Ness and for Capone. But um, De Palma wanted Capone the entire time. Um, what's his face? Um, 
Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Not the rabbit, Bob Hoskins. Oh, wow. Uh, he had been, he had signed for it, but he they really wanted De Niro, and then De Niro was able to do it. Uh, De Palma sent him a, a thank you, sorry check for twenty thousand dollars. I'm sure it wasn't De Palma's own money. And um, the lore is that Hoskins called him up and said, "Anytime you want to pay me for a movie, you don't use me, and I'm your guy." Um, <laughs> easiest twenty thousand bucks Hoskins ever made. R.I.P. Uh, um, yeah, Mario. Mario, yeah. Yeah, the original Mario. Yeah, it was just you guys' first time watching. I know it wasn't. I saw it uh, opening weekend in 1987. And uh, as a 16-year-old, um, I thought it was fucking fantastic. I loved it. Yeah, same. I uh, I went to go see it like opening weekend. Um, yeah, my mother and I went to go see it. And yeah, it was, it was just one of those, it was an adventure. Uh, I think it's something that we sorely miss in a lot of films now that these, you know, and I think it's what made films like Raiders of the Lost Ark um, so fantastic is that it took you on an adventure and, you know, no, no CGI, right? So you actually are going to these amazing locations and, you know, we're seeing them on a massive screen and it just, I just remember being swept away by it and seeing something like in this, and even though, you would think that our generation wouldn't really relate to it because it's taking place during prohibition and that it was very relatable. And I think everybody our age who went to go see it probably end up appreciating it almost like a Western. So yeah, that's strange. I'm about a dime younger than you guys. And I didn't watch it until I was in grad school. Um, professor liked it for the purposes of uh, tracking with uh, uh, story, uh, mm-hmm. the classic uh structure of the McKay book. Um, so that's when I first watched it. I think this is only my second viewing. Um, but I'm curious as 16 year olds or around that mm-hmm. age, what would have attracted you to this film to want to go actually go into movie that, theaters and watch it? Obviously an effective ad campaign. And it seemed like, it, I mean, they focus on the action, but sitting in the audience, the, the second, um, the main theme, the the Song of the Righteous, Ennio Morricone's um, uh, track for the the credits. I think everybody in the audience is totally locked in and keyed in because uh, it sounds big. It sounds like it's going to be massive. It's not a tinny synthesized score that was very prevalent in the eighties. And then you cut right away to this opulence of Capone, and you know that this is. Uh, a movie with a capital M. It's not, not yeah. something cheap. It's not sure. something junky. And I think word of mouth after that, you know, you had the grownups, the olds who obviously loved it. And then you have the youngs who loved it. And uh, it just became, um, you know, everybody liked it. So everybody went and saw it. Well, and the thing but- is that De Niro absolutely commands a screen in, that op- in the opening sequ- sequence, right? I mean, you know, enthusiasms, enthusiasms, you know, and then you get this guy getting, you know, his head caved in at the freaking dinner table with a baseball bat. Well, that, that, that's later in the story. The opening is when yeah. he's he's getting shaved in right. the opening and he's surrounded by press, which is ridiculous. Uh-huh. And then the second the guy shaving him, Nixon. Yeah. There's just this, there's just like his, the look he gives him is so cold and deadly. And then yeah, he's like, yeah. You can feel you can feel the temperature in that room changing, for, and the reporters seem to sense it as well because they're in on a little bit of that wink and nod. I mean, it seems uh-huh. like the reporters also understand that there is some violence that's happening. They 
but they have like couple, they have some deniability behind it, right? Yeah. They don't feel well, complicit with it. So there's, there's a couple things about that though. So the press actually sort of lording over him is kind of accurate. Um, so because I um I sort of became, I heard the song "The Night Chicago Died" the other day, and I was like, I wanted to know more about the song. Um, and it's it's about the Saint Valentine's Day massacre. So when you read up on it. The city actually, everyone in the city actually really liked Al Capone. A lot of the cops, you know, were kind of, you know, they were on the take and they didn't really see him as a big as a big threat. And polit- local politicians were kind of, you know, like, okay, you know, Al Capone is kind of like an unofficial mayor of the city until the Valentine's Day massacre. That was such a brazen move and bloody move. That's when all everyone turned on Capone, and that's when he became public enemy number one. So that the stuff with the press is kind of accurate. I mean, obviously it's, it's Hollywood fight, you know, a little bit more. But to where he was very popular, he was definitely considered a man of the people in in Chicago. Um, do, do we want to do a, a sixty second uh, synopsis that I have for this movie? Sure. Before we go any further, is anybody gonna oh. time me? Well. Let me see here. You said tie you or time you? You can time me. Okay. Yeah, I can do okay. that. Then go, when you're ready. Take a deep breath. Okay. Go. Elliot Ness, a brash and overconfident treasury agent, 1930 at the height of Prohibition's criminality, comes to Chicago to face off against Al Capone, who has won the illegal booze competition with no regard for the rules for years. Ness's early overconfidence causes setbacks, and he realizes the crew he has to work with in Chicago is tainted. With the help of a crusty old-time Chicago beat officer, Ness recruits new players for his team, including Andy Garcia, who shows great potential as a shooter. Things turn around. A nerdy accountant shows he is a man by shooting a bootlegger and figuring out a way to arrest Capone. In the semifinals, the accountant and crusty mentor are killed by Capone's best player, Frank Nitti. Garcia gets his scene as an expert shooter and things look promising, but then the jury hearing Capone's case is compromised. Just when all looks lost, Ness uses his wiles to outwit Nitty with an improvised toss move and then outmaneuvers Capone, taunting him as he is led away to jail in the courtroom by saying, in overtime, the first person to score wins. A callback to Capone's enthusiasm speech. The end. Everyone cheers, but Ness remembers those who died and couldn't enjoy pizza after winning the championship and is kind of sad. The end. Wow. When you said the end the first time, you had it at one minute. Ah. And then the pizza took you over to, uh, seven seconds. Uh, yeah, uh, seven seconds. Uh, yeah, I've got sixty-seven. I got sixty-seven and a half seconds over here. So. Okay, well, I, I paused for dramatic sake a couple times. Uh, when I read it to myself, I got it in fifty-five seconds. So I'm going with that score. <laughs> I don't care market, what the scoreboard says. Market market seven, dude. <laughs> over the line. Um. So th- this this was my galaxy brain uh, um, uh, realization when I watched it the other day is that I, I, the ending is so is, is such a pleasing moment when uh, you know Nitty gets thrown off the building and Capone right. is caught and he tells him the uh, and this endeth the lesson from um, Malone. Uh, it's so satisfying. I was like, this feels exactly like the end of a of a sports movie. And then when I started reverse engineering that, there are a lot of plot points it almost feels like an underdog sports movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same feeling you get from Rocky, the mighty ducks. Um, heck that would be movie that just came out. Which one? Uh, bad news bears, bad news bears. Yeah. So, um, and I think that that's one of the reasons it, 
it's it was so successful is it does give you a feeling of victory that the underdogs overcome the villain who at various points had the um had the beat on them. Did you mention the Dirty Dozen as a comparison? Did I hear no, that? No, but oh. that that was that was something that um I believe Mamet invoked. Yeah. Uh because originally it was like nine dudes on the untouchables, but then some of them they were all excised and they just pared it down to the four guys. Yeah, because you know, um you know, uh, Sean Connery's character tells Elliot Ness that in order to do this, you're going to have to go to the Academy and get some inexperienced guys, you know, that haven't been corrupted yet. Yeah. You got to go to the tree, <laughs> you know, to get fresh apples, mm-hmm. um, which definitely would be in line with that, uh, with that dirty dozen dynamic. It's like, it's the people who no one expects to be successful because, you know, the criminals and what have you. Um, but in this, there are just all completely inexperienced. And plus your, your uh, ace of the hole is the, paperwork nerd the bean counter (laughs) who very early very early tells us exactly how they're going to get capone yeah and then says it two more times he says it three times like shut up nerd (laughs) (laughs) four is just a good number for your characters though right i mean you have the ninja turtles that have four you have sex in Uh the city you have the beatles it's really just gives you everybody in your friend group a chance to say who they think that they are but but, uh, but when you think about that, I mean, because everybody, you know, knows, but going into that movie, how they eventually got Capone um, and that it's, you know, it's it's uh, they basically figured out a way to hack the system, I guess you could say. So everyone already knows, but you still watch the movie because you kind of want to see how they eventually get there or have to settle, you know, for that. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to pack it with a bunch of other stuff when everybody already knows how it ends. Um, and I think that's always the challenge with doing something like at the historical, you know, type context. Mm-hmm. Um, and Andy Garcia for that, that, uh, Academy scene. I mean, that is a, a movie star entrance if ever there was one. Um, he, they originally wanted him to read for Nitty and he wanted to read for stone cause he knew that that was, that was a star making role. Yeah. Um, Billy Drago, great character actor and oh, yeah. villain, but, uh, his Nitty was not the star was not a star turn. Um, and then De Palma gives him that that move um, at the end of the movie at the the train station, which was all De Palma. Uh, I could talk a little bit about the original script and what Mamet had written. Um, but yeah, Garcia has that great introduction, and then he has that everything kind of pays off there at the end. Yeah, um, you could see why that was the role. Well, that okay. whole battleship Potemkin, you know, homage is fantastic. It's shot really, really well. Um, it's probably it's probably what I would consider to be one of De Palma's like crowning or high points as far as a mm-hmm. filmmaker in the Hollywood system. Um, because it, it you know, even though it, it's, it's definitely a homage to, um, Einstein's, uh, Potemkin scene, um, it's execution in there and the slow motion and the tossing of the gun. And then, you know, coming out of that slow motion where Andy Garcia has just stopped the carriage and he's got the guy in his sights. He's like, you got him. Yeah, I got him. Great. Beautiful masterpiece. So uh, interestingly enough, the original sequence took place on a train. They were too late to the train. Um, the the bodyguards were dressed. One of them was as a priest. I forget what the other one was. And the the um, the accountant was in a wheelchair and is referred to as the invalid in the script. And they had to race to a suburban train station and, and put one of their cars on the tracks to stop it and then get on the train. And there was a, a you know kind of a cat and mouse of Ness and Stone and the bodyguards and finally getting the guy. And um, they 
I don't know if they couldn't do it because of budget. They couldn't get the the period trains or whatever, and they the Palma pretty much made made up the train uh, station sequence as they went along. Mm-hmm. Um, but he really liked it, and he said he kind of repurposed it later in Carlito's Way, which has a uh, finale on uh, subway cars. Right? God, it's been a long time since I've seen it. I don't remember. Subways are a train, but um, it's a real great cat and mouse getting on, getting off, going between the cars um, that Mammoth had. Uh, Mammoth's not a big fan of the uh, the baby carriage sequence. Um, whenever whenever there's a screening and he is uh, he's interviewed afterwards, he he lets everybody know that he had nothing to do with that. <laughs> which, and in some ways, it's the best part of the film. In some ways, it's <laughs> it's a different film, right? Like, uh-huh. I, I here's here's the thing that I have. I understand why I was taught it um, in school because it does have a very tight structure. And just like uh, Eric was saying, like you already know how it ends. So the question is just how do you get there? How do you mm-hmm. structure this thing so it has emotional stakes? Um, but I don't know. Like, I mean, th- this year. Uh, Moonstruck also came out and Empire of the Sun. And those are also strange movies to me, trying to watch them back from uh, present day lens of, of movie going. This movie feels like comic booky at times, not like um, action hero comic booky, but like comic strip. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, you have that opening scene with like the kid who comes in to get their, their sick mom something. The guy leaves the package and that kid's blowed up. <laughs> But it's also done in a way that's like weirdly telegraphed and there, uh, or even more so, like you said, uh, there's two accountants in this in a way, right? There's like the treasury guy who comes in with the glasses, uh, mm-hmm. who's in Starman, um, uh, the Oscar Wallace character played by Charles Martin Smith. He, uh, uh, you have, you have in the same basic scene within seconds of each other, uh, when they're on that bridge in Canada, you have him blasting people away. And as an audience member, you're like, yeah, kill people with a shotgun. Right. <laughs> and then you have Kevin Costner's character of Elliot Ness, remote, like very upset that he had, he just killed somebody within seconds of each other. So mm-hmm. you have like, massacre action stuff and it's like yeah killing's great kill kill those people and then the other side of it you have your main character like oh he's finally a man and then you you have like the sense of this uh masculine competent person who's very upset about like ending another life that's the other major scene that was changed from the script because it was originally in the snow with with dog sleds and um they had to change it for obviously budgetary reasons they couldn't find a you know snow snow and dog sleds and whatever um they built all that stuff practical like the 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 bridge the houses and uh, they, they they imported trees to make it look more canadian even though it was filmed in montana um so they they didn't have the money but it appears they did have a lot of money to do a lot of other things that's that's hollywood i guess well i mean that also um that's also the arc of Ness's character, right? Because he doesn't want to have to kill people. And Sean Connery's telling him, you're going to have to get dirty. You're going to have to get bloody. And then that makes the ending when he throws Drago off the roof, the big payoff that Ness has finally crossed over and realized you got to fight fire with fire and your fire just got to be a little bigger. Um, so I think that's the setup for that, for that arc. I um, mean, you mentioned, yeah. tr- you mentioned Charles Martin Smith. Um, my favorite movie of his is Never Cry Wolf. That is such a great movie. 
Oh, you yeah. like that better than Left Behind 3, World at War, where he plays the vice president? Uh, Never Cry Wolf was directed by Caleb Deschanel, who yeah. is a director of photography. Um, yeah, we, yeah, we might add him. We might add him. I don't yeah. know. Uh, so De Palma um, obviously changed a few things and, and did a lot of stuff that was visual rather than the written word. Um, but Thomas, you mentioned your your film teacher uh, showing this. And I'm curious because Mamet is really big on stripping everything down to its essentials of every scene, how it figures into the plot. So he comes up with the plot and then every scene has to move that forward. And he's very rigorous about it. Um, I think the older he's gotten, maybe a little too rigorous. Um, but this movie is is a good one to study as as far as that is concerned, because every scene is is essential to both the plot and where you're putting the characters through. Um, but not in a, in a save the cat Sid field kind of way. Yeah. It's not overdetermined or, um, I mean, the other thing we, we did, uh, was the bear, which has some similarities, but, um, more so, uh, the setback that Ness has at the very beginning to follow mm-hmm. with a Robert McKay's story. Like yet that's what you have to, to kind of do in the first act, right? Show competence, but then show that they uh there's something that's that sets them back that they then have to relearn. And then you have the the uh Dosex Irishman who's actually Scottish, uh Highlander uh-huh. shows up to like when <laughs> he's on the bridge to uh show that he there are legitimate cops in Chicago. And then, so yeah, that's uh, it. Really, does follow uh, that that the story arc of story uh, and, yeah. how, and how you structure these things. I just realized something, though, guys. I left out on both of these. Both of these have a post office. I do. How, how did I miss that? Yeah, because the first thing that they raid is the uh, the post office. The, the post oh yeah, office. yeah, that's that's right. It's yeah. the post office filled with uh, the umbrellas. No, right? no, that, that they that's where his setback is. And afterwards, once he has the gang together, they go into uh, uh, Connery says, like, are you ready to do this? And they gear up and they go into a post office. He's like, are you sure about this? He's like, yeah. And he goes through the door and inside uh, is their uh, their operations. Yep. And okay. The post office is concealing uh, the uh, some rum running and uh, whiskey running down below. Yep. Um, okay. Uh, but le- where this is about Kevin Costner, this is like his really his breakthrough movie. I think no way out was actually shot before this, but released afterwards. Um, but th- this was his, his big coming out, right? Um, not that Kevin Costner is not that kind of coming out. Um, but this, this was like his, 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 big... it was his, his era, right? It was like, Oh, welcome. You're, you're, yeah. you're a movie this, star now. Yeah, this was the first time that he was like the lead because in Silverado and American Flyers, he's the um, a supporting player. So Untouchables is he's the man. He's the lead, which is interesting because you also have Sean Connery in this movie. So And Robert De Niro. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. um, and, yeah, so and, it's, it's, it's a pretty big thing, you know, to like this is your movie and you got two megastars flanking. It you. seems like he holds his weight with uh, um uh, with Connery, but De Niro just seems like mop him up, which is okay because maybe that's the, you know, those are the, who they're trying to portray, right? Maybe those are the characters. Well, you, yeah, have, they, you have to make, you you have to make, you know, De Niro as like the final boss in a video game, right? I mean, he's got to, he's got to be larger than life. That way it makes 
Ness's journey all that much more difficult and intimidating for for him being, you know, new. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Costner is so uh, straight arrow and and determined and, and rarely wavers. There's a moment he wavers after his bad bust and like the, the cops in the background are going like, hey, he, he, he screwed up. Uh, and then he's like, looks sad for a second. But then he sees a woman who is the mom of the little girl who blew up in the starting. Hence, you know, Mamet, everything has to feed into something else. Um, and then he, he realizes that his cause is righteous. And then, um, then he sees Sean Connery had come back after he asked him, isn't that right? Yeah. Connery, yeah. Connery, Connery comes in dressed as a regular, regular Joe. And then, uh, he has a, an old buddy on the beat who might be in Capone's pocket. I don't know if that's ever explicit or not. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then the movie's off and running, and then it's like uh, guys, and they have a they have a mission to take down Capone, and you know, yeah, it's it a check, video game. It, che- it checks off those boxes. Like it's a man on a mission movie. It's uh, quasi western. Um, you know, there's a little bit of a mystery as to like who you know who's um, the bookkeeper. Like they're trying to track down the bookkeeper. Where is he? You know, how, when's he coming in? Yeah. So I mean, there there's there's a lot going on that really makes this that quintessential commercial movie, you know, several times over. Um, and I just think, you know, it's, it's, it is really tight. I mean, you, you, there's, there's not a lot of wasted real estate in this movie at all. Every mm-hmm. single scene, you know, moves the story forward, moves character forward and does both um, more often than not. And um, I would, so the, I think modern movies, they needlessly overcomplicate their stories with machinations of, of complications and machinations uh, like an MCU movie mm-hmm. Need, needlessly complicated. But this movie um, it's a, like you're saying, it's fairly streamlined. Every, everything. It's a pretty streamlined plot. There's nothing extraneous. It's, it's pretty lean as it is where everything kind of belongs where it needs to be. And it doesn't feel like there's anything thrown in. We don't get to see Costner's wife, sister or mother or any plots about them. Um, looking at the newspapers and asking her, well, why is your husband doing this? There's nothing like that. And that is something that you would expect to see maybe from a modern movie. You'd also expect to see Ness before he came to Chicago and have some sort of mini adventure that sets up his character arc. Once the actual story starts. Isn't that? Yeah. His his dad was killed by alcohol or something. Right. 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 But isn't that sort of like the demand now of, um, at least it's it's stuff that I hear um, working in in this business is that like every character needs to have their story, like their their little arc, their little story, um, mm. and you know, as opposed to just being character types, and like now all the any character that's a wife needs to have a much bigger role instead of just being a wife, mm-hmm. which which I get, you know, because women's roles typically were pretty written pretty thin, unless there was something like Terms of Endearment. Uh, where it's a big drama piece, but in movies like this, their roles are written pretty thin. Um, so, so I get it, but at the same time, trying to give every character their arc or their story, it does. It kind of it can weigh a movie down. Whereas it's just much better if you take like a Sterling Silicon approach and just give us that great type. You know their story, you know who they are, and you don't have to spend a lot of time on screen or page count, you know, getting it in there. Um, and I, and I always like refer to Sterling Silifant for doing that because he was so great at just telling you who somebody was just by um, their the, the career choice that he gives the character, 
um, their dialogue and just the demeanor and some of the things that they say, boom, you know who that person is right away, um, which yeah. is which was great. And those action and those, you know, um, Poseidon Adventure, Towering Inferno kind of movies, because you need to get things moving pretty quickly. Well, also, uh, some actors can bring stuff into it. It doesn't necessarily have to be on the surface of the movie, like um, famously Andrew Robinson, the guy who played Scorpio in the Dirty Harry movies. Mm-hmm. He created a whole backstory of, of Scorpio's um, motivations. And when you watch the movie, it is, it's actually pretty good. You don't have to know it. And it's not said in the movie. He's just fucking crazy in the movie. Um, but he brought that to every scene that he played. And you didn't need to necessarily see Scorpio before Dirty Harry starts. And no. and I think maybe that's the difference. Like you don't need to see Elliot Ness before it starts. You don't need to see his wife and her family and her worrying that maybe Ness is doing something where he's not gonna be able to raise his kids. Um, or she's worried because his dad died of alcohol and, and he's just trying to get back at him for not being there. You know, there's nothing like that. Yeah. No. And it very easily could be. No, and I think that's why it, it, this movie works is that it doesn't get bogged down in any of that. Um, and so, yeah, A to B, you know, plot and um, it's the way it's executed. I mean, it's what's it's the, uh, the Peckinpah saying. It's not, you know, just blowing up a bridge. It's how you blow up a bridge. Um, and I think this movie blows up its bridge really, really well. Yeah, I I think uh, I just had two thoughts occur to me. One, um, and I hate to keep going back to what these movies have in uh, common, but. Uh, well, uh, it does seem like both of them hinge on success coming from a lie because Ness lies to the judge to say that his name was on the list when it really wasn't. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. I, I thought that was that was more of a bluff, I felt. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe a, maybe a bluff then. Um, but then a bluff, you get the confusion. Like, are you talking about a cliff or like what, what kind of bluff, you know, um, like a poker bluff. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. But also, uh, what to your point of like just the writing level of writing? I mean, it's uh, Nettie is uh, super scary. I'm sorry, not Nettie. Uh, uh, Drago is super scary in this, right? Uh-huh. Uh huh. But he's like, nice to have a family <laughs> whenever they're in their car. <laughs> it's like, whoa, that's a sinister fucking line, right? Um, I got chills. The guy just looks like he's gonna uh, stab somebody, um, which he will. Um, uh but uh the rescue of the family uh the, the threat or the the risk to the family is something they often see uh in these type of films and it's not overplayed in this one to its benefit yeah i mean they they pretty much deal with it the second it happens well they're they you know uh he has to be there there's the estrangement and also uh yeah they they leave the house and then they're like uh you know in a safe house for the for the rest of it including the hospital but there is the mm-hmm. there's the constant risk or, or fear that uh, that that part's going to get sold out. Just like the, I mean, you know, I guess you can be touched. Like whenever the uh, accountant uh, on the Untouchables is killed in that elevator, like the risk is always there to Costner's family, which is yeah, why he has, he has time to write Touchable in blood on that uh-huh. elevator. That's a very considerate murderer. <laughs> I, I would say that's a nice touch. <laughs> uh. Yeah, it, it it is pretty brutal because, um, um, I mean, some test audiences were concerned about the amount of blood in this movie. Um, extremely bloody. The the blood in the elevator from the, the cop getting shot. And then um, it just and then uh, when Malone, Sean Connery gets killed. I mean, there's there's. Oh, yeah. A, yeah. Um, 
Very bloody movie. I don't think to its detriment. It's not exploitive like um, like a Richard Donner or Joel Silver might have slow-mo squibs in your face. Um, yeah, but it just it's a brutal world that the movie's trying to do. So there has to yeah. be danger and there has to be danger for your main character. So if people aren't getting brutally murdered, then there's no danger, I guess. Well, and what's interesting is that um, this was a rated R uh, summer movie, which you don't see too much of anymore. Um, but it was based on an IP. Yeah, it was <laughs> an old studio property, a TV um, show. So I'm wondering if this would even get an R now. I mean, I don't know. Cause I, it, there's nothing like incredibly graphic about it that stands out to me other than when Sean Connery's character gets, gets killed. As oh no, the, bloody. the, the killings are pretty brutal. I, there's no way yeah. it could be PG 13. Well, the girl, you know, holding the, uh, bucket of beer getting blown up, <laughs> you know, probably, but, um, yeah, I mean, cause it's, yeah, you know, rated R. Because uh, that when you submit a film now, if it's it's, it's rated R, um, and it, you want to have a major release like Christmas, summer, they try to get you to cut it down to a PG thirteen. Although yeah. I think Deadpool may have changed that dynamic yes. a little bit. Um, <laughs> so, and not the Clint Eastwood Deadpool. No, not the Clint Eastwood one. So I do <laughs> I do know that Deadpool did kind of flip the script on that a little bit. Um, but yeah, still, I mean, you know, a rated R movie uh, for a summertime release doing doing that well. And that's how much the business has changed since this came out, because this was a budget of 25 million and it only made 10 million its opening weekend. And the, the rated R may have actually bit into its potential business a little bit, uh-huh. but that would be considered a failure now coming in that far below your budget. I mean, in you know, um, it's not like a movie like Avatar 2 where, you know, it's a, you know, a $10 trillion movie and, you know, you're only, you're only making, you know, 10, you know, you're only making 3 billion the first week because <laughs> um, you know, it's going to eventually get there, but you know, a $25 million budget only making 10 million. They were like, Oh, this is a failure. This is no good. But this is when movies were allowed to have legs and stay in theaters, you know, for a long time. Well, um, there's, there's less, less competition everywhere for entertainment then. So yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. Movies would stick around. Um, all summer and um <laughs> a few years later he would have a movie that stuck around <laughs> for a year so eric and i uh, we're gonna jump ahead to dance with wolves a little bit we'll go back to the untouchables but it played at a theater he and i worked at for how long eric uh actually i'm gonna say it was probably officially for 15 months so it was over a year <laughs> holy shit <laughs> i remember yeah and so, what kind of people came in and kept seeing it for the entire year? Um, you know, the Grants Pass locals. <laughs> um, actually, no, I will say we had because there were because there were tribes um, in our area. And so some of the Native Americans would come in to watch it because it had a very respectful um, storyline for them. Um, and of course the locals, the ranchers, the senior citizens, I guess what you call the olds, um, they would come in and you, we, we would see the same people coming in, you know, every once in a while, if not like every other week, they would watch that movie, um, four hours. The, uh, you know, we finally had to move it out of the large auditorium into one of the smaller auditoriums. Um, but it stayed in auditorium number six <laughs> for, um, like the gosh, it was probably in there for the good, like 10 month run. Well, we finally did that our term and we never had a, never had a canceled show because we were allowed. If nobody, if only one person bought a ticket for a movie that long, because it costs a lot of money, you know, to run a movie projector. A lot of people may not know that. I don't know now with digital, but 
Um, it uses a lot of electricity to run those lamps. And mm-hmm. if it was only like one person, we would offer them a pass, you know, to come back another time. But we never had that situation with Nessus with Wolves. People showed up. And it's like you were kind of praying because it's like that last show of the evening. It's like, okay, this is a far movie. Please, nobody show up. Because they're gonna make mm-hmm. me stay until midnight, and damn it, somebody, somebody would always show. Oh up. my god! And usually, and more than than just one somebody, like ten people, guaranteed minimum. It's a, it's a good film. Uh, I because I was gonna say, um, you know, I'd like to get my money's worth. So, like, yeah, three hour film come going on. Was it the discounted Mondays? Uh huh. That's a nice cheap air conditioning. Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was a Tuesdays. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Go in. <laughs> Uh, we, we actually had to order um, a replacement reel um, for one, um, you know, because people may not know this now. So movies used to come in film cans and inside those film cans were all the reels that make up the entire movie. I remember we had to replace a, a reel um, and it was funny because it just got so beat up and it had a few film breaks. And what was funny because they we ordered it directly from the studio and then they ship it to us by by Greyhound. So you'd see kind of this print that's pretty well used, and then for, for like twenty minutes, there's like this crisp, pristine, pristine fucking print for like twenty minutes of the movie. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then back man. to the screen, the shitty platter <laughs> scratched. Uh, the cataracts, you don't notice the difference. <laughs> Uh, oh. should, should have advertised it now with uh, new scenes added. <laughs> Reel number 14. <laughs> How many reels? So Costner parlayed basically three big movies, Untouchables, Field of Dreams, and um, uh, Bull Durham. And then he still had a hard time getting Dances with Wolves made. Um, had to put up some of his own money, I think, is the... Is that the myth? Yeah, and the only uh, studio that would do it was Orion. Um, which th- that's when when Orion when Orion went out of business, it really took a lot of people by surprise because they had just had a string of hits and Silence of the Lambs and Dances with Wolves um, being two of them, and then suddenly they're bankrupt and out of <laughs> out of business. But Orion was was on a hell of a run uh, at that time, um, which is so it's really too bad. But yeah. Um, he had to put up some of his own money or he deferred his actor salary, which was on the rise at that time. And only took, uh-huh. I think the salary as a director uh, and a public that, public that might be it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You, you have the mythology down better than I do. Yeah. Uh, but, um, uh, De Palma was on quite a run that decade, uh, dress to kill blowout scarface body mm-hmm. double. We'll pass over wise guys. Um, then the untouchables, uh, and then Casualties of War, which I, I don't think is a bad movie. Um, and then uh, he it's, had his postman in The Bonfire of the Vanities in ooh. 1990. Whew, that's a brutal one. I think uh, the problem but, with Casualties of War is that it's not the Vietnam movie people wanted to see. Yeah, it's it's pretty grim. It's pretty and it's grim. Based, yeah. And it's Michael J. Fox, and you don't want to see Michael J. Fox in a Vietnam War movie. I'm no, sorry. You don't. Um, but De-, De Palma was really, really invested in being a work for hire for this and trying to visualize the script that Mammon had written. Um, obviously, the the famous scene in the the train station, he was allowed to make up because they couldn't shoot on, or they didn't have tra- a train to shoot on, um, literally, both ways. Um, and you could really see that he directs. The, the heck out of this movie in uh, how opulent 
Capone's world looks. And all that was shot in, um, a lot of shot was shot in Burbank. Um, the suits, the Armani suits, I mean, it, it really creates an elevated world where everything seems, it almost seems otherworldly, the way that people dress. The world Capone um, occupies in that hotel. He does seem like the final boss in a video game. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, for, I mean, the set design in this movie is fantastic. Uh, and you just mentioned the costume design. Um, this, Giorgio Mani. This, mo- this movie is really incredibly immersive um, in, in, <clears throat> in its world building. Um, and the way De Palma shoots it, it's lush. It's beautiful, um, especially some of those exteriors when you get to, you know, quote unquote, Canada. Um, and it's uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing um, as far as how it's shot. Um, but yeah, I'm surprised. Why haven't you guys done a De Palma? That that is, uh, it, that is it, it, it's 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 on the list. Uh, that, in De Palma to Han has been the title for about three years. But uh, <laughs> oh, and I also forgot he he directed the Dancing in the Dark video in '84. Yes, he did. Yeah. Uh, so he was on quite a run and Wise Guys um, at that point. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that. I mean, his career is actually um, really worth diving into because. Yeah, he's done some great, great movies, and then there are some that are just kind of snake like, eyes. Wow, <laughs> like Black Dahlia. Um, you know what you would think would be tailor made, not to get too far off track from Kevin Costner, but what you know, some, uh, something like you know, um, uh, James Elroy's Black Dahlia, you think would be absolutely tailor made for someone like De Palma, and it's a mystery as to how that just went so wrong. Um, yeah, yeah. If you do De Palma, let me know. I, I would definitely love to uh, come on talk some De Palma. Okay, yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a big fan. Actually, um, t- t- I was I had Bonfire of the Vanities on mute this morning while I was doing uh, research on the the movies that we're covering today. Um, yeah, that movie blows me away every time of how every single choice he made from the book uh, to the finished product is completely wrong. <laughs> it's it's really remarkable. And we may bring up Bonfire of the Vanities again once you're off air, Eric, for the next movie, <laughs> because it, it is hard to imagine um, anything where you can make every single choice wrong. <laughs> From the, the script to the actors to the production design. Well, Melanie Griffith's pretty good. Um, it, anyway, we're getting off course from Costner. Yeah. But yeah, no. So if you do De Palma, I'm, I'm definitely in for that. Hey, okay. you can always uh, push for him for a four by four by three whenever we decide to come back. Okay, to do our four by fours. Um, okay, put try and put him, maybe put him in one of the brackets, and we can uh, see see where he goes. Uh, did you want to do Google reviews for this kid? Yeah, I do. Um, so the the funny thing about the Untouchables, which gets even funnier in the next movie. Which will be the punchline. Um, there are no um, there are no one star reviews of the Untouchables, but there are two star reviews. Um, D M Young from nine months ago gives it two stars. Boring, nothing like I expected it to be. Lazy dialogue, just not intriguing. Some scenes are drawn out longer than they should be. I'd like to see them focus on the prohibition part of this era, minus the sole focus being on Al Capone's taxes. F F S. Ooh. That means for fuck's sake, doesn't it? <laughs> um, Becca Lost in Books 
from a year ago gives it two stars. Overrated movie. It had some good moments, but De Niro was basically the same mafia personality he always is. He only has one, apparently. And the end was just a little too anticlimactic. Um, and let's get some five stars. Watch this movie. Excellent movie. Kevin Costner, Sean Connery, Andy Garcia acted excellent. And Robert De Niro stole the show by portraying the character Al Capone. The rest is in all caps, so imagine me shouting. Excellent cinematography and music. Brian De Palma direction was top-notch. David Mamet's screenplay was too perfect. One person found that review helpful. AI's Uh, come a long way, right? (laughs) Uh, Kevin Epps from two years ago gave it five stars. Rewatched this film over the weekend. Enjoyed it again, second time round, some 30 years since first viewing. I'd forgotten how much Ennio Morricone's music contributed to the tension and suspense. And I did that one because I kind of agree. Uh, Morricone, we haven't talked a lot about him other than the the main track, but great late era Morricone. Um, eh, That's it. That's it. We got some good ones for the next movie, though. Well, you know, uh, so, I mean, I guess, you know, to to sum up Kevin Costner um, for me, because uh, I mentioned I, I I like him quite a bit. I always have. Uh-huh. I always find him interesting, but not interesting enough to watch The Postman. Um, <clears throat> I, I was, it's interesting because I do consider him like one of the last stars. And I think we've talked about this before, um, you know, privately. I don't remember if I brought it up on, the, on your podcast before. But um, one of the last movie stars and... Because I've I've talked about it um, in connection with Tom Cruise that I feel like Tom Cruise is one of the last movie stars. And this morning, and it's interesting because I was thinking I watched um, Top Gun Maverick again last night. And uh, this morning I was reading Variety, and there's an article by Brent Lang and Titania Siegel, um, and it's talking about Con, you know, Con Film Festival, and <clears throat> it's about the conversation that we used to treat movie stars like gods. And Hollywood grapples with loss of young star power. And one sales agent said, over the last 10 years, we've done a really shitty job of creating a new generation of movie stars. And I, I kind of, I was thinking about it because I kind of agree with it. And I was trying to figure out what's really changed. And I feel like, number one, we, <clears throat> back in the day, um, you know, like when um, 87, when Untouchables came out, Stars were not always readily accessible to us. You could only see them in movies, TV, um, read about them in magazines about film. But now we just have so much access and it feels like stars are just so pedestrian. I mean, because now we have social media where I get to know every stupid thing that enters into some of their heads. And you kind of realize like, wow, this person's, you know, not bright. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Uh, that I, and I also it's just too accessible and now we're making stars out of influencers and TikTok people and so what is star power anymore now it almost seems like a little too accessible even by fluke and <clears throat> so I think for me I think Kevin Costner is an example of one of the last true Hollywood stars up there with Cruz and um, I would say D- DiCaprio is is probably yeah the young. He's a good twenty years, twenty five years younger than Costner, but yeah. But is I would it say also DiCaprio just the films have changed. I mean, I mean, my thought is that films just have changed. So you don't have a sense of oh, we need a we need this type of star in this film, but rather we can put we need this type of face or this type of actor 
here. And so they're not as beholden, maybe. Like, I can't imagine Last Action Hero or Twins being by anybody but Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Right. Yeah, and that's it's studios also actively trying to make the the properties the star. I mean, we've really seen that experiment with the MCU later day after the Avenger, last Avengers movie where they're trying to make the IP the star and they could just plug anybody into these roles and it's, it's simply not working. Um, so I think it'll, it'll flop back. I know, because I feel like, you know, Morgan Freeman, you know, I cannot picture anyone else in those roles in Seven other than Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt because they bring so much to the table. And that was like Brad Pitt's, that's the movie that sort of like knocked him into that yeah. next level of acting. No, he, right? he, no, he's phenomenally good in it. And both of them are perfect in that film. It's a great film. But I could see like them casting an Ed Norton or somebody else. Um, mm-hmm. Not at that time, right. Ed Norton, because he's too, young, too, too soon right. in his career. But there's other people that could have been in there. So I feel like this um, kid, uh, is it Timothy Chalamet? Is he the kid from Dune? Yeah. Um, I think I think he's somebody who, you know, can become part of that next um, generation of stars. Because he definitely has like a quality that the camera loves him. He's great on screen. He, he commands a presence. And maybe and maybe that's what it is, is that we're, we've made too many people who do not really command a presence stars like influencers tiktok celebrities like i talked about um and it's and they're only there and thankfully they're only famous for you know a, a cycle or two before they replace with somebody else just as insipid um so it almost feels like watered down like star quality is watered down and for me that's what makes people like costner and eastwood and morgan freeman and denzel washington still make me go to the theater because um or tune in to something like Yellowstone because I still feel that their energy and presence is still not it's still um valuable um because I just don't feel like we see that anymore it's very very rare okay well said um are we done with the untouchables i have a question for you if we are i think we're done with the untouchables okay so this is side hustle season and i'm trying to change up what the question is so this is my new take on it if the Kevin Costner of the Untouchables needed a side hustle based on him in the Untouchables, what would his side hustle be? I have one and it's a spokesperson for a line of whiskey called Volstead Act Whiskey. And he's, <laughs> he's in the hat with the, you know, the old 1930s suit and he has a, a little snifter of uh, on the rocks whiskey. And it's like, um, you know, when I'm when I'm done <laughs> knocking down Al Capone, it's time to knock down a glass of smooth Volstead Act whiskey. And that would be a side hustle. Not a bad one. Yeah. You guys got anything? I think he does loss prevention at department stores. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. He just stares down. <laughs> stares down those shoplifters. <laughs> Thomas, what do you think? Uh, I don't know. I had to go with something where he, uh, like, I don't think there's such a thing as a sandwich critic, but I think it's somebody like who offers you <laughs> half of a sandwich. Maybe just a guy at the park who offers you half of a sandwich. He has his own sandwiches of history. <laughs> Instagram account. <laughs> hey, there you go. <laughs> Does it sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I guess we're done with the Untouchables. Um, 
Untouchable sandwich. Untouchable sandwiches. Holy fuck, man! Oh, He's got a food wow. cart. He's got a food cart. Just, just you won't want, you won't want you won't want to share these sandwiches with anyone. They're yours. They're untouchable. <laughs> just They're a bunch so of good. There's a bunch of great sandwiches you're not allowed to buy. <laughs> <laughs> or you you could buy them. You just can't touch them. <laughs> great food cart. Um, Eric, you're you're going to leave us, right? Yeah, I got I got a ton of work to do. <laughs> So I really do. I'm not just bailing on the postman because um, I could I could probably hang out and talk about it in the abstract um, uh-huh. on the periphery. But I really do have a lot of work to do. So. OK. Um, but thanks for having me on. I love talking some Kevin Costner again, one of my favorite actors. Um, I love the untouchables. Um, I think it still holds up even today as um, and that that's the advantage of being a period piece, too. Um, so, yeah, I love talking about it. So thanks for having me on. Okay. Um, uh, you won't know we're taking a break if you're listening, but we'll be back in a moment. Um, Eric, don't hang up. Thomas, I'm going to stop recording, and then I'm going to do a separate recording for the postman, okay? Sounds good. All right. And we're back without Eric. It's just Thomas and I. Uh, we did take a little break running down a dream, or were we running down a dam in order to get... oh. That's Our a, background material on it's a Tom Petty reference. It is a Tom Petty reference because uh, he's in this movie, which we'll talk about. Mill? Yes. <laughs> uh, 1997's The Postman. 1997, um, Event Horizon, Gummo, Con Air, Face Off, Absolute Power, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Uh, I guess we didn't cover Armistad, did we? Or Jurassic Park 2. But those are all things going on around this time. Wow. Did Meryl Streep have any movies out in 97? I think this is one of those gap years. Okay. Okay. Um, not a great year for Eastwood. Pretty good for Harmony Corinne, though. Gummo? That is hard course. to believe. And, there is a U- and Cage. Con Air and Face Off? Well, Con Air. I'm not a big fan of it. It's hard to believe that the same universe exists where Gummo and the Postman were possibly playing at the same theater at the same time that everything didn't just like um, get sucked into a black hole or a singularity and that we're still alive. Well, that was event horizon. Wasn't it? <laughs> that was the plot. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. That they went to another universe. Oh my gosh. Well, the other crazy thing about 97 that I didn't realize if I, I didn't actually double check this from reading uh, something on Bryn's, um, the guy who wrote the book, The Postman, uh, David Brin, uh, he, he said that also Verhoeven's Starship Troopers and Zemeckis' Contact came out this year. Could that be right? Contact seems right, and so does Starship Troopers. That yeah, Starship the Troopers was 97. Because that's the one he made after Showgirls. Uh, Holy crap. Yeah, so uh, this... It's almost a film. Oh my goodness! Um, I think the, I had the optimal experience though of of this um, of watching this movie for the first time. I also reading the book for the first time, uh, though I'd read some other David Bren material. Uh, I was reading the book. I got about two hundred pages in. And I said, "I think I have enough room to watch some of the movie without it too influencing uh-huh. me too much." And nothing is in it, is it? There's so little. Uh, between the two that actually overlaps. And then I was like, cool, I'm going to read the last bit of the book because it's getting really interesting. Uh, I'm very curious how a supercomputer 
in <laughs> Eugene. That wasn't Eugene. It was Corvallis. Cor- Cor- Corvallis, yeah. Yeah, Corvallis, um, the other big uh, university here, uh, how that's going to take place in this film. And then when I got to the end, spoiler for the book, which the book's pretty darn good. Uh, first uh-huh. chapter's a little rough. The last half is, well, I'm sorry, the, the what I'm about to talk about right now, a little much to take. But um, a lot of good stuff in between everything. Uh, there's superhuman people who have augmentation. And then there's mm-hmm. like another set of superhuman people who have augmentation. And they fight, fist fight it out at the end for the fate of humanity. And there's uh, so, so I was I, like, Oh, my goodness. How is the film that I'm watching right now going to get to there? Because right? it's a, I read this book as a teenager when it came out. The book is a surprise. And then I'm like, okay, well, you got a lot. You got, I got another two hours because I can't sit through this, the film for more than an hour. I got to the line dancing scene and I was like, (laughs) I can't watch anymore. I, I just, as a, as a person, I cannot suffer anymore. I have to throw in the towel and watch a little bit more later. So when I read this in the the book, I read it when it came out in paperback because, um, I love post-apocalyptic stuff and, um, I remember it took place in Southern Oregon where I lived at the time. And, you know, like the Umpqua Valley, the Rogue River, I lived in the town of Rogue River. And then they go to Corvallis. Um, And what I remember about it is it was a little less um, macho post-apocalyptic gore and action. But um, I actually enjoyed the book quite a bit. And what I really remembered, what I took away from it was the, the Wizard of Oz part of uh like the ai guys who are pretending it's still there even though it's not yeah is that right yeah yeah i was i was so so excited to see this movie because i thought oh how is he gonna do that is he he's not gonna go all wizard of oz about these scientists doing that but i thought it it made it made a pretty powerful statement i thought that the people needed well here's something that this movie could have done this here's something the movie could have done okay um and it doesn't which is the postman and uh, who is the titular character, uh, what we're about to talk about, but also the Cyclops have this parallel of a lie that if you believe it's true, helps restore things and make people better. A movie can be the same thing. Uh-huh. And this film doesn't actually do that. Uh, even though there's films within this film. It doesn't mm-hmm. actually do that. Uh, the story of the film doesn't really do that either. Quite like the uh, the lies that are within it. So there's just so there's some pretty. It's uh, the interesting thing though, and the thing that really oh. made it unique. I think uh, maybe for you as well is that at this time, your post-apocalyptic stuff, and even afterwards, like the zombie mania that we we had about a decade ago, it still I guess continues a little bit with evil de- uh, with um, um, Walking Dead. Uh, around this time, your post-apocalyptic stuff is Mad Max style, right? You already had Mad Max uh, by 1985 when the book came out. You already had this Road Warrior uh, that came out. You had, um, I think I might have given you this book, The Warlord, where a guy has like a crossbow running around killing people in uh, in California after an earthquake. Like everything, as one does, uh, as one maybe, yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll stop there. Uh, yeah, so there's it's a different take on the rebuilding after um, a, a traumatic event kind of ends the world, and the great thing about the book is that 
uh, all the survivalists, like all the people who were uh, stocking up to uh, survive what happens, they're the first ones to go. Or mm-hmm. they don't actually survive. Like th- like all this prepper um, militia resurgence, uh, none of that's successful uh, in the book. Um, and so it's like immediately like Bryn's like putting his finger in the eye. The author's putting mm-hmm. his finger in the eye of all these other people who are saying, you need to be ready for the cult. Like uh, whenever the rescues drop the bomb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my dad was a doomsday prepper back in the eighties, so I was I was pretty well steeped in it. And I almost wonder if this movie would not have been popular in any era because it's so fucking terrible and incompetent on every single level. Um, but it does feel like it's about ten years too late. Uh, really, the the Reagan era, the the fear of the apocalypse, really spurred those movies and that whole genre into being. And um, by the late nineties. It was pretty much over. Yeah, there's a a podcast I listen to called Unclear and Present Danger, where they talk about the films of the 90s and reference to the end of the Cold War. And yeah, I think what you're saying has a lot of resonance with that because, um, yeah, this is like this isn't this is late 90s as well. Like this is Uh second term Clinton. Like Y2K might be coming soon, and and but. Like, but it's not really on people's radar. Like, this is the uh, peace uh, dividend era. Mm-hmm. This is the era of uh, where we, I, I think we started to see um, that triangulation and what that actually meant with NAFTA and other like uh, um, reforming uh, uh, unemployment and uh, other things happening in, in the country. Like this weird like undercurrent conservatism while being culturally mm-hmm. uh, liberal. Yeah. And none of that's in this film. No. Um, Jesus Christ. He's um, not in this film either. Um, I, You know what? Um, when I saw this movie in 97, because, again, I was like, this is back when you didn't have, you know, you obviously didn't have the Internet. And uh, Kevin Costner had proven um people wrong with dances with wolves and i i had read some stuff was wrong with the movie or with difficulty in getting it made um but you didn't have the the preset of what this movie was going to be before seeing it and um i went in with an open mind hoping that it was going to be the book and after i saw it i thought it was one of the best worst movies i had ever seen i think it's unfortunate it's so long uh because i do think it's so bad. And almost a Tommy was so in the room way in so much of this movie, like the last hour I was just laughing watching it last night because everything is so poorly timed, poorly shot, poorly acted, poorly everything. Even Overly the dramatic changed. at times. Yeah. And um, I was saying if this movie was an hour and 45 minutes long, uh, people would still be talking about it and um, <laughs> doing 100%. ironic screenings of it. No, no, hundred percent. If you could do the Jar Jar Binks thing where you take him out of the f- episode one, but instead take all the, like, uh-huh. the mediocre stuff out of this film and just have it be all the bombastic uh, slow motion nonsense. Um, I'm, I'm especially thinking of the final uh, fight scene and also when he gets the mail from the kid he r- rides past. All the... <laughs> 
there's just so much nonsense in this film uh, that, yeah, I think you could do a super cut, just cut it down to two hours, cut a third out of it, and it'd just be uh-huh. the most mondo trash you've ever seen. Yeah, it's as, it's as good as The Room, I would think, if you could do that. If you could do a Soderbergh on it. Um, actually, I wrote that in my notes, that someone should do a Soderbergh on this and cut it down. Do you have a, a, a synopsis of this for us, the movie? Uh, you mean in 60 seconds? Eh, it's, okay. it's a Costner, so it could go up to 90. Uh, <laughs> I, I get a second for every uh, two minutes of runtime. Oh my goodness! Not even that. Every three minutes of runtime, I get a second. Um, so this film is just under three hours long, right? Uh huh. Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, let me know when you're ready to go. Ready, set, go. Kevin Costner has a horse who is his buddy and co-actor in a two-hander stage production of Shakespeare in a post-apocalyptic world. After being taken captive with others by an Oregon militia of sorts headed by a soldier's uh, scholar, former copier salesman, uh, General Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem, uh, Costner's unnamed character is impressed by these wholeness into their army, branded with an eight for the eight rules of Holm, uh, forced to watch The Sound of Music instead of Universal Soldier and to eat his horse. He escapes while hunting a lion, finds a letter carrier's outfit in mail, and pretends to be the titular postman, an office he pretends exists along with the restored United States of America and Broadway. Uh, before facing off two hours of runtime later against the wholeness of General Bethlehem in a playground-level fight scene, not in the cool Daredevil way, for the fate of America by invoking Rule 7 of the Eight Rules, the Costner character will get an independently-minded woman with an occasional British accent and a husband pregnant, create a postal service, watch the execution by firing a squad of friendly townspeople, beat Tom Petty, take a CGI ride by Skytram, and wear some nice sweaters <laughs> along the way. That might be my one minute, but that's not all, folks. As for an ending, we uh, jump forward a time beyond 2013 twice. Once to a little after the postman's daughter's birth, and then much later to that same daughter giving a speech for him that was the opening narration. But now we see her at an unveiling of his memorial statue that recreates a scene we saw about two hours earlier into the movie where the postman takes a letter in slow-mo from a young boy who is now grown and at that uh, dedication because, yeah, he needs to be there for some reason to say he was that boy (laughs) and have a flashback back to the earlier scene in the film in case you had forgotten. God bless the restored states of America and its future 90s business fashion. <laughs> a minute 58. <laughs> uh, that was quite good. Um, but what's crazy so is what, all that is like legitimately in the film without like much flourish or, or zhuzha. Like, uh, like, like I'm not spicing it up at all. Like that is, that's the film. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't even... You didn't even get into the part where when the postman comes into town and Olivia Coleman in her slippery accent uh, start asking a very personal question and her really eager, <laughs> smiling husband comes up and they both want, um, you know, the postman to deliver some mail because um, he can't get her pregnant. Yeah. Um, and then he's like, oh, oh, gee, I, I don't think so. Golly, gee. Uh, but he ends up doing it anyway. And then the husband ends up getting killed, uh, et cetera, because he won't burn the flag or I, no, he does burn the flag. I don't know. He he does. And he throws in the I don't remember. Yeah. Uh, 
So I guess the reason he doesn't, I was like, man, that's weird that he's just like completely clothed, but then you have to have him completely clothed because she will later find out after she's a widow um, and been taken by this militia, uh, which isn't really a militia, but like an army, but isn't really an army, Uh but who cares? Uh, uh, Because that's when she finds out that he has the eight on his shoulder, the branding that happens at the first part of the film. And if she had known that earlier, then maybe she would thought something different. I don't, I don't fully know. Um, What's crazy. Okay. So um, not to keep going back to Bryn, but he watched field of dreams and his wife turned to him and said, uh, that's him. He's the one who's, who's the postman. (laughs) And he was like, there's no way that's going to happen. And apparently uh, he sold the rights as soon as it came out. So it originally was published in two different uh, parts. And then it was put together as a novel. Like it was maybe published in analog and another uh, science fiction magazine. And then they, they put it together for the, to make a full novel. And then, um, they he mo- pretty much immediately sold the rights to uh, producers uh, Steve Tisch, and then that's when they hired Eric Roth to do an adaptation. So Eric Roth, you might know from Forrest Gump, another adaptation, maybe from Insider, mm-hmm. another or uh, Man's Insider or Man's Ali or uh, Spielberg's uh, Munich, all adaptations. He also did the, I guess, the Good Shepherd that De Niro would direct. So maybe we mm-hmm. we might talk about that or A Star Is Born because Bradley Cooper. But anyhow, um, he did Eric a right. Has, has a pretty good filmography. Not all great movies, but uh, for adaptations of like some pretty heavy novels, and uh, he's he's been a go to for about three decades. Yeah, I mean, I think Gump was his big breakout, if I remember right. Yeah. But, um, so Bryn says this on his website. Uh, the resulting, sc- we're talking about The Postman and its adaptation. Uh, the resulting script, despite at least a dozen dubious rewrites, became notorious in Hollywood, discouraging even such figures as Tom Hanks and Ron Howard, who had been attracted by the overall concept. So Costner would buy it, uh, so it would come on, uh, as the director and threw out all the old drafts and then brought in Brian uh, Hagelin, right? Uh-huh, uh, yeah. who, who did LA Confidential before, wrote on uh, Assassins with the Wachowskis. Uh, I think would go on. Yeah, he would be the director of Payback, right? And uh, LA Confidential came out in 97. He yeah, 97 was a big right? year. It was Confidential Conspiracy Theory, unfortunately, in this film. All that he wrote or co-wrote. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty wide... Wow, That's very strange, especially conspiracy theory, which I infor- I don't know why, because I, I was watching that back to back with, um, oh my goodness, it was another conspiracy film. I decided just to watch them both. And yeah, conspiracy theory is nonsense. It's terrible. Um, we talked about LA Confidential. We did, Jack and I did it on a Christmas, Christmas episode. episode. Yeah. yeah. And that um, Hanson came on and really used the the structure that Heglin had kind of cracked the code of LA Confidential. And they're both, Hanson was very diplomatic, um, but I have to think he did more changes to Heglin's script of LA Confidential than he used. Well, I guess um, you just have to look at Blood Work or Mystic River because I doubt that Eastwood changed much. Yeah, Mystic River's not bad. Uh um, it's so, structure. It's structurally, it's pretty good. So here's the funny bit there. So uh, Hagelin comes in, and he says to back to Costner, 
because to you know because they threw out the script he says hey you know there's a pretty good novel by the same name why don't you borrow some stuff from it what so uh hegelin was brought in because they were like trying to fix the original script by roth and hegelin's like well you know there's a book by the same name he didn't realize that they were adapting the book because the script had gone so far afield what yeah, apparently Roth's script just kept going further and further away. That which might be why they turned their hats backwards at one point. <laughs> <laughs> we used to do this when we were kids. <laughs> or uh Hello, fellow youth. How, uh I know a funny name. Ford Lincoln Mercury. Ah uh, <laughs> That's a character's name in the movie, by the way. Uh, played by Lawrence Tate, who I would say probably is the best actor in this film. Oh, I'm sorry. Gives the best performance in this film. Olivia Williams um, is good. Costner is good. Um, uh, you got you got Kruger from season nine of Seinfeld as the sheriff in that Pineview town. <laughs> uh, I cannot see him and not think of Kruger when he's like, you're not a real postman. And Costner's like, so what? I expect him to go, eh, you're right. I'm going to go. Oh, shit. <laughs> They, I'm locked out of the sheriff's office again. Well, I'm going home. <laughs> Seinfeld lore for you. It's, oh, my. Um, I guess. Uh, oh, my goodness. Why, why can't I think of his name? There's a there's a po- there's a postman character in Seinfeld. And you know what? There's other. T- Newman. It's yeah. Newman. Um, this movie totally screwed up a great joke I had because it was released on Christmas Day in 1997. I was going to say it, it was called it's Black Friday for the post office because every mail carrier called in sick the day it was released to go see it. Um, but they don't deliver mail on Christmas. So I, they fucked up that joke. Uh, Thanks Warner brothers. That's not, yeah, that's the only thing that this movie ruined. <laughs> not <laughs> so caught. I mean, like we said, uh, back when we talked with Eric, I, I believe um, like even fish tar, which is what they were calling what water world. Right. <laughs> uh, eventually with, uh, releases uh vhs laserdisc uh dvd would make its money back yeah i don't know if this movie which cost around 80 million dollars and brought in in box office uh, around 17 million ever made up that golf if you haven't seen the postman um i don't know if i would encourage you to watch it but it's it's almost impossible to convey how Every single choice Costner makes as both an actor and a director um, is completely the wrong choice. Uh, there is no tonal consistency in a given scene from like cut to cut. Um, nothing about the the world makes any sense. You never have one uh, positive feeling that somebody knows how this world works or what's really going on. It's it's all surface. Um, the mu- James Newton Howard, not my favorite composer. This may be one of his worst um, soundtracks. Well, I think there was something else going on that was very '90s because they all of a sudden, in addition to like line dancing, uh, about an hour and a half later in the film, if not two hours later in the film, um, whenever they. What 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 what's the I can't remember what the celebration is, but they do. There's a cross cutting between a dance and post uh, letter carriers being killed, right? Yeah, uh-huh. and they have a song. They have a cover 
of that Redbone song, Come and Get Your Love. Uh-huh. And then they do another song called Almost Home, which it, it feels like both of those had to just be for the soundtrack CD, which I don't know if it was ever released. Like I tried finding it. And I couldn't find like the soundtrack for this movie uh, outside of like playlists that people had put together uh, that just have the uh, orchestral music. The last week's movie, we talked about Wet Hot American Summer and um, the Going to Town montage. Um, yes. There is a sequence in this movie where Olivia Coleman and, and Kevin Costner as uh, Johnny Postman, um, they get away. Uh, turns out she's pregnant. They're stuck in a cabin in the snow. Uh-huh. And it, and it feels like months pass by. He's, he grows a but, beard, though. So he starts off with a fossey, right? And yeah. then he become then like he gets a full beard. And then, because at some point, the general captures him uh, very early in the film and does not recognize him until the very end of the film. He's like, Shakespeare? Like, he, <laughs> uh, even though they have multiple encounters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it seems like it seems like months and months pass. But then she's been pregnant the entire time, and she doesn't show. She doesn't show the entire movie. Really, there's no bump or anything. It's just um, at, they they cut to like a year later, and she has a baby. Yeah, I guess that's true. I was. Oh, I think it was. A but different, then, go ahead. But then they come out of uh, the trapped in that cabin eating snow, melted snow for dinner, even though she's pregnant. And uh, he goes out one day and um, because she, because she's fucking nuts, she just burns the cabin down. It's like, you didn't think we were going to stay here forever. Like who does that? Um, But then apparently an entire post office with routes everywhere has started not far away, despite the fact that they were trapped in the snow. Um, And they have a whole infrastructure. the the postman junior guy, um, Lawrence Tate, is that his name? Yes. He has like a whole post office with uh, different routes and they're all kids who are like junior postmen. And it's like this big thing has happened. It seems like a year has passed by because it's, it's pretty intricate. Yeah, it seems like she must have lost the child and then become pregnant again by Costner for the film to work. Uh-huh. The, because of just uh, timeline. Because babies don't like, my understanding is like you, you got like a, a ticking time clock, right? You don't, they don't hibernate. No. Yeah. But he's, he's sitting there in the window looking out. It's like holding, was it her underwear that she left him? No, it's, it's her hair tie. She has like a little ribbon in her hair. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there are parts of this that legitimately remind me of the parody of somebody self-serving, um, self overly self-serious thinking they're making something important of uh, Garth Marenghi's dark place. And there are certain sequences where it really feels similar, but Costner's doing it sincerely. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I mean, here's the other side to some of that in that, um, I mean, the book's great because you have actual um, strong female characters in a way that are um, separate from the protagonist. Mm-hmm. And and what he's trying, like his, he always has his weight on his back heel throughout the book. He's always ready to run, which you get a little bit of that in this movie, right? Like he's thinking like, oh, I could just take off. Um, and, and many times he should just take off, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There's really no reason for him to stick around in the movie. 
Um, and they try and like merge that uh, character along with a few other characters in the book because, yeah, uh, for whatever reason. Um, and you end up with this. Uh, but you have to, I mean, it would seem like kind of unlike what we were talking about with the, with the last film with Eric, you actually need to know what her motivation is at some level or like mm-hmm. a little bit of where she's at psychologically, which he's just like shrugging it off. He's like, you're a, you're a wild woman. Uh, uh, no, you're and, weird. He says, yeah, you're yeah. weird. Multiple times. <laughs> like, you're weird. It, she, she's probably in mourning because she, her, her <laughs> husband died. She has her pregnant husband. Yeah. Who, she's pregnant. Um, which that makes sense in the book, right? Because like it's a little bit like child, uh, children of men scenario. Like people aren't getting pregnant. Like if you've had the mumps, if you've had these different diseases, people just can't. And then also, she doesn't want to ask anybody in the town because then it'd be weird because everything's really insular. So mm-hmm. th- you would have to live with that. But if you're a postman, you would only see each other like once a year or something like that. And so yeah, it makes sense if you're trying to restart humanity. Maybe you, you know, you have Kevin Costner go to stud. Um, but this, yeah, like a so, boy and his dog. but in addition to the morning, <laughs> the, the, the movie, uh, boy and his dog phenomenal. Um, so in this movie, she's probably mourning, but she probably also has some post-traumatic stress disorder as well from like killing a bunch of people a few minutes uh-huh. earlier and saving Kevin Costner, who's bleeding out. Uh, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem like the movie's like smart enough. Um, aside from just calling her weird. Like it doesn't really deal with any psychologically scarred people, which it's not serious enough to do it, but it's also not fun enough to avoid. It's weird because he comes back to the cabin. It's it's engulfed in flames. This is 1997, so it was actually a structure that they burned. They've been staying there either for days, weeks, months. We don't. We're not really sure. And when she's walking away, he's like, "You didn't think we're gonna stay here forever?" He calls out to her, "You're a weird lady." And he's kind of like has that little Kevin Costner grin because he kind of likes it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, what what do you do with that? That what world is this taking place in? Well, um, it gets even crazier whenever you meet Tom Petty. Like <laughs> in the last thirty minutes of the film, they're running away. Uh, he and Olivia are running away, and uh, they're just going to go start over again. He's disbanded the post uh, the postal service. And so, uh, but the three kids, three of the kids, the original are following them because it's the nineties and you have to have like teenagers. It's like hook. You have to have like the teenagers Uh or the kids there, right. To make things enjoyable for that quadrant. Um, yeah. And so, uh, they're all, uh, a dam, which that actual dam, um, was in Seattle. Uh, it's one of the, uh, it's the dam that helps power, uh, Seattle. I can't remember the name of it, but they actually shot there and had to like have structural uh, approval and t- times that they couldn't film because of uh, it's, it's actual still working dam. Um, wow. And so, yeah, Tom Petty shows up and is like, uh, Kevin Costner's character who's unnamed, he's the postman says to him, you look kind of famous or something. Right. And, and Tom Petty's like, yeah, I used to be. <laughs> let's, uh, let's be clear. Tom Petty in a post-apocalyptic movie is playing <laughs> Tom Petty. That's like Tom Petty. Who's the mayor of the dam. <laughs> huh? And it's supposed to be funny. 
Yeah. Or just be like, oh, yeah, it's Tom Petty, but they're not saying it. So it's like winking at the audience. Uh, so good. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Can, uh, I just want to give uh, quick chunks of this movie so people don't have to watch it. Maybe they just jump in where they think they want to. Uh, so you start off with like Kevin Costner jumping on a trampoline in the desert, talking to himself, pretending to watch television because he's completely batshit, maybe, and his horse. He's talking to his horse, Bill. He's doing the Jimmy Stewart thing from the, you know, if we're talking about the, the three faces of Costner, definitely the Jimmy Stewart where he's like all awkward. And even when he's forced into living a lie, he's still not totally comfortable with it. And so he, uh, we get a voiceover from a woman who says that it is his daughter. So you're like, okay, he's going to have a daughter by the end of this film. Um, and then also there's a lion and which will come back somehow. Uh, and he's in the gas station. Like he hits a cigarette machine and like all he, he like knocks it over something and finds extra cigarettes. And he's like, Oh, I'm rich. Never pays off. And then he's brushing his horse's teeth, going into a town to give a performance uh, of Shakespeare with him and the horse and the horse. It's not in the book, but I'm glad that this exists fights him with a sword they have so they, they battle with swords against each other there's uh, a wooden sword in bill's mouth bill the horse and they have a sword fight with two wooden swords kevin costner and a horse named bill and then the holonists show up and they decide to take males between like it's like a um selective service or something right it's like the draft mm-hmm. they decide to take some of the men from the town and they take costner along with them to go train them to be soldiers or slaves or die. Oh, oh my gosh. Us. Yeah. And so that's like the first, like that's, that's like 30 minutes in the film. And then you have like another 15 minutes of him escaping kind of. And then he finally finds in 40, minute 45, he finds because he's run away from them. He jumps into a river and it's rainy and there's another, he's supposed to be hunting a lion. Uh, and then he sees the lion and the lion like saves the day. Right. I don't, uh, 45 minutes in, he then goes into a mail truck, uh, a letter carrying truck. Right. And finds the skeleton that has the mail bag and the, uh, uniform, which he'll put on and then pretend Mm -hmm. to be a letter carrier from there on out and then restore the United States. And then people believe him and it inspires hope that there is a future and he encourages humanity to come back from the brink of uh, extinction. Yes, but how he actually does it. (laughs) Yeah, because he disbands the post office and then all of a sudden he like goes and he gets, uh, is it women and teenagers from neighboring towns at the end with Tom Petty? They just show up in this army. So this this is this is remarkable how terrible this movie is. But I I, I had to rewind this because I'm like, wait a second. Tom Petty is like um, saying like you're gonna go for a ride, buddy. And he has on this. They're at the dam, and a weight falls down, and he's like on a zip line with a little thing to stand on. And it shows him, you know, in in bad special effects of going and thinking. And literally the next scene, he shows up with this group of people. So there's no scene of him going there saying, Hey, you don't know me, but Tom Petty sent me. And you know, yeah. we're, we're running down, we're running down a dream for this reunited uh, 
United States. There is there is nothing like that. It just cuts. Yeah, aside from like the leap, all that. aside from the leap forward to his daughter, and then the leap forward to his daughter grown up, uh, which is like the last five minutes of the film. Uh, this uh-huh. is like the last thirty minutes of the film. So you have the forty five minutes I just described, the thirty minutes on the back end, and you still have like another hour and forty minutes of middle filler stuff. Which we we already mentioned the the cabin that the girl burns down. Um, and then there's like a, a lot of nonsense with the, the post kids. Yeah. And then, but also like there's the scene where he rides off, uh, and there's like five, uh, letter carriers on horses and they branch out, like they ride off heroically, they branch out. And then you can see that that's when I think Costner goes and rides past the kid with the letter and then turns around and rides back in slow motion. So they can create uh-huh. the thing at the end. It is did you watch the preview for this film and then go watch it in the theater? Because I think I saw the preview and I was like, I have no interest in that as a seven as a nineteen year old, seventeen year old, seventeen year old. Well, I I had read the book, so I was going to see it no matter what. Plus, I got into movies for free back then because I okay. worked in a movie theater. So um, the, I the didn't preview see for this, the preview for this does not. Um, it, it is the film. Like you watch the preview and it's like, oh, it, there's no voiceover. Uh, which is nice and interesting, but it's just like patriotic looking uh, images and clips from the movie. And it's like, Oh, that looks terrible. And yeah, it it was, Uh, but the Mm -hmm. breadth of that terribleness is stretched out over three hours somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, But the last bit of the movie is, yeah, he uh, invokes Law 7, which you you heard two and a half hours earlier in the film or however long earlier an hour and 45 minutes earlier when they list mm-hmm. all eight laws. And some of them are just like, I don't know. You can't spit on Sundays on the sidewalk. I can't remember what all of them are, but like seven yeah. is whoever decides uh, any, any wholeness who can fight another wholeness for leadership or fight the leader for, uh, for uh, to be the leader. Um, and so one person had tried doing that earlier uh, mm-hmm. and that person, I think, got their tongue and maybe also their testicles cut off. It was a guy. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what that's how Costner wins the day is he's like, oh, I remember rule number seven. I'm going to invoke that. And so they ride horses towards each other like they're going to joust him <laughs> and the general. And then they Costner leaps off of his horse. They fight in the mud are like in the on the ground rolling around like put each other in headlocks and uh just grappling is, in a way that they're just like, rolling around yeah they're ro- it's almost homoerotic that they just kind of roll around in the dirt on each other um one of the worst fights climactic fights and i don't need it choreographed um but you know like uh like the fight in uh Barry Lyndon when he's he's in the army that's like two guys fighting it's a fight, but they just literally roll around until they say a few things and then Costner punches him. Yeah, he's like, you had nothing. To, I know who I'm a judge of character. You had nothing to live for, Costner. You don't really believe anything. And he's like, I do now or <laughs> whatever. Right. And, uh-huh. and then he's he uh, he wins. And then uh, Postman Jr. Ford Mercedes Audi or whatever his name is, has a has a pistol is going to shoot him by invoking rule eight which we heard also earlier in the film which he has no knowledge of but i i guess somehow he learned it uh, along the way maybe that's all they talk about is the rules uh which is uh, anyone who betrays the wholeness gets executed 
Um, but then he doesn't kill him so that the general can steal the gun from his hand and then have to be shot by the guy who had his tongue cut off. That's right. Uh, what's his name? Uh, the lieutenant from Rockford Files, the actor. I never watched that. Joe Shoe, what was his name? Anyway, yeah, Joe that's who he was. Yeah, Joe, Joe Santos. Shoe. So can we, can we go back to the starting when Costner first gets caught and um, Will Patton, who plays, uh, what's his name? Bar- uh, Bar- General Bethlehem. Who who basically looks like uh, Joss Whedon? If Joss Whedon wanted to cast someone to play him, that's a little better looking than Joss Whedon. Oh, that's a good call. It. Yeah, but Costner is given away <laughs> by a little kid with Down syndrome waving at him. Uh huh. And that's how he originally gets caught. I- I'm wondering what the thought process was. <laughs> and hey, you know what'd be great here is if he got caught because he was <laughs> fingered by a little kid with Down syndrome. What were they thinking? I I don't know. I really don't. Uh, <laughs> is it is it just supposed to be like uh, innocence? Is it representation? I don't I don't know. It seems cruel that the only representation yes like, the, 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 kid, the kid is never shown as as a good worker who wants to be part of the community. He's just shown as is giving away Kevin Costner and putting him onto this journey to be the postman. Yep. Um, oh boy! Hey, the other thing that really stuck in my craw is that uh, at some point, um, and this is going to be a, perhaps a triggering thing for some people, so watch out. Um, but it, it has to do with sexual violence. Um, the uh, the basically the well, I guess there's the the younger post uh, letter carrier. I was about to say the only woman in the film, but there there is the the tomboy who's great. Um, at one point wants to dance with him, which is kind of creepy. I mean, yeah, Costner's I mean, credit, Costner ignores her, but um, and, come on, man. Yeah, and Lawrence Tate steps in and takes over, which is nice, right? Like, age-appropriate. Yeah. Um, but the Olivia Williams character, Abby, um, is abducted by the the baddies and is uh, General Bethlehem's uh, potential, like... Uh, concubine. Um, concubine, thank you. Um and uh apparently he never um he beat her because he couldn't uh have sex with her and therefore and therefore she is still pure somehow underneath the construction of like the the world that we're supposed to like how how this movie like to frame things so she's still pure and he's sexually frustrated and might be a closeted homosexual and that's why everything happens it's, it's and we are, I think I think it's much more interesting is if it's like yeah the daughter at the end is actually the general's daughter and she's suffered a lot and she like, there's all these other interpretations that could happen right but no in this uh he can't be because he's sexually frustrated uh he can't be uh he doesn't have other fulfillment therefore he's the general therefore uh, he's painting and cutting people's tongues off. Not very deep. Yeah. Um, and it, it does lead to that very romantic line when they're in that cabin for days, weeks, or months. We're not sure where he says, you look pretty. And then now that the bruises are gone, uh, he tells her he's pretty because the bruises have healed that the general gave her. Well, I think it's uh, his recovery. It's, I think it's his like, 
I'm I'm hitting on you. And he's like, okay, I'm stepping back. <laughs> um, there are some lines I wrote down where uh, someone tells Kevin Costner, the postman, I think it's the blind lady, you're a savior. And he says, no, I'm just the postman. Olivia Coleman, she says these lines, <laughs> I want you to make me pregnant. Those are lines in this movie. <laughs> um, and then the the sex scene that they have, <laughs> would she act? They actually do do it, and that's what impregnates her. Uh, it's it's a montage of them doing it between doing it again, and yes. it's like the okay. Team America Team America sex scene. It's not that outrageous. Where it's like they do it like position. four times. They do it like four okay. times. That's man. what I was curious about. Up. That's what I was curious about because uh, I'm trying to find my notes here uh, because I didn't realize uh, Crow Magnum Man discovering fire. Okay, that's where he's there. Okay, this is my question. Um, does he come and they have sex again or does he lose his erection? Hmm. No, I he- think he's got some express delivery going on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh- no, I think the uh, the implication is that he is extremely virile with a lot of strong swimmers, and he does it a lot. Got it. Because in the book, I he's mean, there for multiple nights, and he's afraid of wearing out his welcome. But this seems like it all just happens in one night. And you have to think that Bill, his horse, has been gone long enough that he probably is pretty frustrated. So he probably had a lot uh, pent up. They played uh-huh. a lot of Mortal Kombat. Um, uh-huh. Oh goodness! Yeah, I love I, the line when uh, he is he goes to uh, another town and he's explaining everything and he's delivered a few things of mail and um, someone shouts out, "Well, how much does it cost to send a letter?" And there's a moment where Costner's characters like doesn't know what to say, and then there's a bell ringing outside and the bad guys are coming. Saved by the bell. Saved by the bell. He's like, "Oh, phew! I have no idea. What's money? Ten dollars? Ten dollars to mail a letter? I mean, money doesn't mean anything." But they just ignore it after that, just for a laugh line. Uh, he sings the uh, much worse than I got. And what is that? Uh, Jacob's Ladder. Uh, mm-hmm. Hey, Mr. Postman. Uh, tyranny being spelled wrong was. That was, was I, I think uh, it was funny. kind of funny. Oh, I like the, the repeat of like, oh, he's so smart. Like there's two there, there's two buttons there, right? Like he says it again. That yeah, same yeah. character says it again. But also the general says like, oh, tyranny's misspelled. But uh, the first time the kid says, boy, he's smart. That was actually funny. Uh-huh. The, the fact that they had to put the hat on the hat, like literally two minutes later, where he says the same thing in a different circumstances. Uh, they didn't need to go back to the well that quickly. True, the first but, time he said it, it was, was funny. Yeah. One of the few times that like intentional humor works, I think. Uh Yeah. It, so there's a moment where he has a spoon. He says, don't make me use this. Do you remember what that was? Oh, okay. That's no. when they're in a cabin and she has a knife to him because she'd seen the eight on his arm. And then he's like, he takes his, he has a spoon. Oh my goodness. I'm, I'm just looking through these notes and they don't, uh, he grew a beard really quick. Uh, she falls in the river. Uh, oh, um, one of the things I learned from watching the DVD commentary, which there isn't, uh, actually there's no commentary, DVD special features, DVD available through the Modoma County Library. Shout out. Shout um, out. They, uh, they, there is some CGI on it, not just in that, uh, where he takes the zip line 
uh, trolley. Oh, the, the lion, the lion earlier. The lion. Like a Red Hot Chili Peppers music video. <laughs> they uh, uh, in that scene where he uh, rescues Olivia from the uh, the river, uh, they added a lot of snow in there. There was no snow. Um, so all that uh, snow was CGI, and then they did, so they did a lot of After Effects type stuff uh, to help um, fill in the world around it. And I thought it actually worked pretty well for that. No, I didn't. I didn't realize that snow was fake, so I was fooled. Um, so to to get, I think to give someone the idea of what this movie is like, if you're not going to watch it, um, imagine like one of the Kirk Cameron. Uh, left behind movies that level of production acting um self-seriousness that they're actually doing something that is meaningful and going to possibly change lives um just imagine one of those but with like a big budget and and kevin costner as as the star um and that's exactly what this movie feels like i don't know who the audience is but it wasn't me well kevin costner still loves the film uh he does he says this I always thought it was a really good movie. I always this is a in a written interview. Uh, he did, uh-huh. I, I think maybe it was Slash Films, maybe with somebody else. Uh, but he says, uh, I always thought it was a really good movie. I always thought I probably started it wrong. I should have said something like Once Upon a Time, because it really is just a modern day fairy tale. It wraps itself up with a storybook ending with a statue. You know, I thought it was a pretty funny movie set uh, against like the idea of a Superman or somebody stepping up. But uh, in the postman's case, it's a very humble guy who's nothing but a liar. He delivers the mail and burns half of it just to stay alive. So I like the movie. I mean, Is I that think the that, movie, uh, a modern day fairy tale. I, I think that there no. could be. I think there's an opportunity to like do something. Like at the end, when I'm watching with the with his uh, his daughter giving the dedication, I'm thinking, well, maybe everything we saw in the film was a a. Um, historical fiction something that's been with time like uh washington's uh wouldn't can't i can't tell a lie right like maybe there's some um historical uh aggrandizement of of, of this oh, figure oh. in the past so you cut to old olivia coleman and old kevin costner who's supposed to be dead yes and she she looks at him and says uh wait is that the way it really happened and he shakes his head and says hell no but I guess it is now. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't an ending, be ridiculous. An ending, maybe they're on a train or something, and it's like the man who shot Liberty Valance, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. That, that'd be a good template for this kind of movie. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe, uh, you know, uh, it's not Costner, but uh, Lawrence Tate, like uh, Henry Lincoln Mercury, who's taken on the mantle and he's like, oh, yeah, that was me. Right. Or. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Like, it's just, I don't know. They're, 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 it, this film definitely is missing a large piece that would <laughs> uh, give balance uh, or, did, or or center it. Uh, and, so did you did you like the scene where they're all gathered and the little girl says, What's a postman? Oh, you mean like and the music 30 swells? Minutes, Thirty minutes before the end of the film? Yeah. Does he uh-huh. does he actually return? I don't think he says anything to her, but in the uh uh in the preview he does. Oh. Well that so, leads to the line You have a gift, postman. You give out hope like it was candy in your pocket. <laughs> 
Uh, did you write all these down because you, uh, you, you you might crib them? You're like looking for inspiration for <laughs> your next screenplay? Yes. Yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, the first thing I would have done uh, if I invoked rule number uh, rule or law seven <laughs> and then I win is revoke law seven because otherwise everybody's going to be coming at you, right? Like the first thing you yeah. do is you're like, okay, I'm, I'm in charge now. New rules. No rule seven. No one. Can, I'm I'm dictator for life. And it's like you know he just found like a crate full of those uh, eight ball leather jackets, and that's why he had to stick to eight rules because he had all the cool jackets for all his minions. But what happens if he wants like a rule nine or revoke a rule? What about all that branding? What about all that those jackets? He's kind of stuck with eight rules. And eight's just such a weird number. Like, it, yeah, it looks like an infinity sign from the side. You have the eight ball. Um, I guess if they were trying to go for like racism, uh, prison tattoos of eight eight stands for like hell Hitler. But it's uh-huh. really hard to know like why they settled on on eight. Because I mean, Fight Club, you just had to have one the, the one rule, right? But you it? just repeat it. Uh, I don't remember. Yeah. I don't think I'm allowed to talk about it. Uh, so the the end of this movie after. Um... They, they tussle around Will Patton, Joss Whedon, and uh, Kevin Costner, the postman. He gets up and says a few words. There are literally, uh, I don't know how many are actually there as far as extras, but there are the, the um, Joss Whedon guy has an army. Kevin Costner comes with an army. And then Kevin Costner says a few things. And it literally cuts to like all of these hardened, borderline criminal savages that... Um, the Joss Whedon guy had, they're all like nodding going, yeah, you know what? Maybe we should stop fighting instead of saying, Oh, fuck that. I'm going to take over. You know, half of them wanted his job anyway. Exactly. That's but why, they, they, that's they just, why you, that's why you revoke rule seven immediately. Yeah, I agree. Uh, well, you had the one spy switch sides during the battle and they didn't shoot him. That, that, I, that was wild to me, uh-huh. but I guess that them's the rules. Uh-huh. Yep. You made the rules, buddy. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Joss Whedon. Um, th- another thing I did think was funny, you, you talked about it earlier, is they had the uh, the movie screen on the little, um, like a reservoir, and they show uh, Sound of Music, and then they start showing Universal Soldier, and everybody boos until yeah. they put on Sound of Music. Kind of funny. Uh, yeah, but still, never show a better film in your film. Which would be almost any film ever made. Yeah, in this to, case, to stick away from. There's also just no reason to be for them to have electricity. Like in the book, people don't shoot uh, their their rifles very often or their pistols because ammo is a. Uh, you, there's not a lot of ammo anymore, mm-hmm. so you use knives as much as you can or a bow and arrow because. Yep. Those things you can make more of or find more of. They're durable. They don't have a, you know, they don't have a set limit, right? You don't uh, use them up. In this movie, they have heavy artillery. They have machine guns when they need them. Um, Mm -hmm. They have electricity, it seems like, everywhere, whenever you need it. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. it's really hard to know how bad things are. And I think things have to be kind of bad for, like, the conceit of, oh, will you get me pregnant so that, uh, my husband and I can have a child. Yeah, he needs to watch while we're doing it. Um, they they never explain how these people are sustaining themselves uh, because you know Kruger 
Sheriff Kruger, he he's he's a pretty stout guy. He's eating well. Um, a lot of people are eating pretty well, but they never show them farming. Uh-huh. Uh, they never show them um, like scouring, like in all these post-apocalyptic for for old cans of food. There's none of that. Nobody yeah. really, other than when they're um, they have snow soup in the cabin, which may be a couple days or a couple months. We're not sure. Um, yeah, there, there's no explanation of how these people are subsisting. How are they subsisting living in a dam, Tom Petty's dam? I don't know. Like, well, I guess the other question is, I guess I mean, that the question is like all the letter carriers, how are they surviving? How they're, how are they, how they, they feeding the horses? Yeah. Yeah. Was, yeah. The, the horses shit. I didn't even think about the horses eating because they eat a horse at one point. Uh, yeah. Um, in the cabin. Well, twice once they, eat, uh, his thespian partner, uh, whenever he's in the prison camp and then whenever Bill. he and, uh, the Abby character, Olivia Williams, are in the cabin. They they eat that she goes out and shoots the other horse and they get to eat. So maybe there's a lot of Which horses in Oregon. Of, it's kind of a weird flex for him not to eat the gruel made with his horse because he was friends with it. But then he thinks it's cool when Olivia Williams shoots the other horse. Um She's weird. Can't have it both ways. You're weird. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> So this is, this okay. is one Can of we talk, let's the, talk Costner, maybe like how, why, oh, I, what was he thinking he was making? I, I, it seems like, I mean, I think maybe two things happen. One is, you know, the runtime like we just talked about with Eric of dances with wolves is quite long. And so maybe mm-hmm. it's like people are into longer movies. And the second one, like he might've been high on his own supply at this point. Right. Like, uh-huh. Uh, you know, he had some uh rocky stuff that we all do. Uh, right? Like every professional has some, some moments that aren't as great as others. And he's coming into this. Uh, and I think everybody's just kept telling him, yes, he didn't have a de- I think if you have a decent editor, maybe this film becomes better. And if you have a studio uh more in charge, it's, uh, you know, I I like all tours, but still, like I think that there was nobody there. To, for him to to step in and say this might be going in a direction you don't want it to go. Yeah, so um, I want to talk briefly about Yellowstone because that um, like every episode's written by Taylor Sheridan. Uh, everybody knows the story of Taylor Sheridan. He was an actor, wrote a couple scripts, and now he's like um, now he pretty much runs Paramount Plus with like fifteen different shows based on Yellowstone and other shit. Um, and the the pairing of of Sheridan, like his first couple scripts and movies, uh, Sicario, Hell or High Water, uh, Wind River, um, perfect pairing. Costner was definitely not at his peak. He was more of a character actor at this point, not really a draw. Uh, but those two coming together created a show that became is still insanely popular, like the most popular show on TV. And they didn't get that. They don't get along, and that that has led to Costner's leaving the show. His character is going to get killed, I believe, and Matthew McConaughey is going to replace him as another character. But whatever. Um, but his renaissance in Yellowstone, being a main draw, a, a movie star in his uh, Gary Cooper mode, um, gave him enough push to want to make a long gestating. Uh, film called uh, Horizon, which he co-wrote with uh, the dude that he 
he wrote that kid's book with 10 years ago. Uh, and then he's decided to put his own money into it, which is always cool because they always say, don't put your own money in your movies. And it's turned into four movies. <laughs> yeah. So he is making a quadrilogy of a uh, family epic, like one of those, um, like uh, those North and South books that just have like dozens of characters over timeline, East of Eden, a big old family epic taking place before, during, and after the Civil War. So and he did that interview. Know. He did that interview with him, Coppola, uh, on uh, Deadline that you sent, right? Yeah, yeah. And he says this because I I think that this last bit is really what's important. Uh, Deadline says. What's the difference between uh, the mediocre ones and the classic ones? Uh, authorship. Okay, so Costner is re- responding like, look, um, you feel like you're in the careful hands of a storyteller. My background is hunting mm-hmm. and fishing. I sat around campfires with my father and watched older men talk. I got to know what re- the real storytellers were. Here's, mm-hmm. the, here's the button on that. Time doesn't matter if your story is interesting. <laughs> So how long your film is doesn't really matter as long as the story is interesting. And that might be the, the lesson of Dances with Wolves versus The Postman. Uh, yeah. I, and I'm wondering, because uh, he followed up The Postman as director with um, Open Range, but five or six years after that, probably the most solid least grading of all three movies he's directed. It doesn't get into the, the schmaltzy stuff or the, uh, Oh gee, I'm just an every man. I'm a reluctant hero. Um, none of that bullshit. It's a pretty good straight ahead Western, but that was, that was like, uh, gee, 20 years ago. It's directed a movie wow. since who, what, what Costner are we going to get as director? We know what we're going to get as actor. He's limited range. He has the three, the three modes basically. So nothing is going to surprise us there. I'm really curious and him putting his own money into it. Um, you know, Hey, more power to him. I'm kind of rooting for him. Yeah, me too. And I like his attitude towards it as well, where he's like, you know, like basically you can't take it with you. And why wouldn't I invest in a story if I believe in it? Like, even if it doesn't make money and I, you know, that's, I wish it was a little bit more of that or that support of that instead of, people where they they said dances with wolves they were calling it kevin's gate yeah but he knows his audience now he's like i feel like he's recaptured a demographic that was waiting for him to uh, this yellowstone kind of recaptured a demographic and maybe that's what he's he's counting on as far as who is going to watch this movie um well when you said mcconaughey is going to take over for him i was thinking man wouldn't it be great if we had a season four of true detective with kevin costner and kevin costner or kevin costner and somebody else yeah Oh, who would you pair with Costner? Oh my goodness! Uh, oh, uh, um, Lakeith from Atlanta. Oh my goodness! Yeah, really? That I mean that's like my one of my wife's crushes. Oh, I, I think he's fantastic. He is in that new um, Haunted Mansion movie from Disney. It looks terrible, uh, but I I absolutely love him, and he is a a, a unique presence. And anytime he shows up, I'm like, okay, it's on. He would be great paired with Costner if Cat- Costner was in his taciturn Gary Cooper mode. That's a good pairing. Let's, HBO, hit me up. Let's, let's pitch it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but his his new movie, the uh, the Horizon films. I mean, the rest of the cast beyond Costner, you got Sienna Miller, Sam Worthington, Luke Wilson, Giovanni Ribisi, who comes back from The Postman, uh, Thomas Hayden Church. <laughs> okay. Um, Michael Rooker 
And a guy who uh, was a direct-to-video superstar back in the day, but as he's aged, has gotten very interesting. Uh, Jeff Fahey. Oh, okay. Yeah, not not necessarily a top-tier cast, but that doesn't mean anything. We'll just have to wait and find out. Maybe we'll do a follow-up episode. Yeah. Um, So The Postman made how much money? Uh, Less than $20 if I'm right. That was 17 Let me check my facts. Yep, 17 Okay, well, um, three years earlier, there was a movie called The Postman, which made $33 million off a $3 million budget. Uh, that Is was that the, the one directed, one? By, directed by Michael Radford, uh, written and starring uh, Massimo, Massimo Troisi and Thomas. I'm going to spoil something here, so take your headphones off. Okay, take, I'm going to take them off. I'm not listening. Okay. Um, it is a great movie. Uh, Pablo Neruda uh, is the basis of a lot of the poetry that the postman delivers. It's very romantic. It's very lush scenery. But um, the actor and screenwriter had heart problems. And the day after they finished shooting this film, he uh, suffered a fatal heart attack and died. So um, the film is dedicated to him. And if you haven't seen it, it's a wonderful movie. Okay, Thomas, come back. Oh, cool. Well, I was just doing some Google reviews. Okay. Yeah, I was reading here. Let me see. Are we done talking about the postman? I, you know what? It's been an hour and six minutes. I don't want to give any more. Uh, I mean, we're not done. We still have to uh, see what the internet says. Okay. All right. Let me see. Five stars, every bit riveting at the drop of the, I'm sorry, at the backdrop of the U.S. Vietnam War is a powerful story of the press rising against the political deceit and corruption. If you love real stories, oh, this is the post. I'm sorry. Uh, Spielberg's the post. post. Okay, here's one star. Uh, Alpha Motors Manazaz. Be aware this dealership has most of the cars, accidents, structural damage. This is not, I, I guess why we, that's why I don't like Google reviews. These things are weird. Six days ago, I made a reservation at the Red Lobster in Rochester Hill a few weeks ago. I'm still on the post. I'm sorry. Let me get out of this. Um, okay. The post, 4.2 stars. Uh, I'm sorry. Four, yeah, 4.2 stars uh, with 166 ratings in Google. That's the 2017 movie. Um, the Postman. 4.3 stars <laughs> and 103 reviews. So this movie, uh-huh. according to Google reviewers, is better than The Post. Uh, also better than uh, The Untouchables because there are no one, two, or three star reviews that I could find on Google. Uh, okay, so 4.3 stars. Okay, this person gave it five stars, Mark Barlow. And this is actually kind of long, but it might be better than our podcast. Ready? Okay, yeah. Uh, despite the negativity of now generations of critics, The Postman is unapologetically its own film. Neither visionary nor innovative, Costner directs and stars in what critics panned as self-aggrandizing, overlong, and corny. But the world is changing, some might say for the better. With directors like Stephen Chow, Edgar Wright, and uh, Watiki uh, directing and acting in their own films, Maybe there is room for Costner's arbited serious attempt at semi-steampunk dystopia. Make no mistake, <laughs> Costner is not these people. There is no self-aware humor <laughs> to be found here, but maybe that's because it's a serious kind of story. Speaking of which, and in case you don't know, the story champions a fake postman who rallies those who had given up hope of ever being free in their illegal army of oppressors. 
a seemingly odd concept unless we remember that going postal was once a turn of phrase in the U.S. Mm. I'll say one thing with certainty. There is charm to be found here. It can be found in the cinematography, the settings, the corny dialogue, the dramatic close-ups. It can be found in the concept of traditional means of communication when a world lies broken. It can be found in the journey and character development. For the charm alone, it is worthy. Still not sure about the love story, though. Seems unnecessary. But it was the Mm -hmm. 90s, and sex sales was still a key phrase for every producer. The cheese gets laid on pretty thick at the end, but if you forgive that, then it's a good film and worthy of your time. Not for everyone with that long time runtime, but if you're like Costner, but if you like Costner, cheese, and another dystopian America, then have a look. Wow. Yeah, good job, Mark. Uh, I'm not sure if that's really an opinion. It feels like it was written by a bot, but yeah, five stars. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You got any more? I got some. Uh, well, you want to trade back and forth? Because I have a four star that says, fun movie. This is by Rock Snell three uh-huh. years ago. Fun movie from a retired letter carrier. I could see it. Uh, I'm deleting that one because I had that one too. <laughs> that was going to be my finale. That was funny. <laughs> what does that mean? Wait, is, is that, wait, wait. Does he think that Kevin Costner's character is a retired letter carrier? No, or I think Kevin Costner is, is no, a retired reviewing it. Retired. And he's like, yeah, this is. He's one of those people who's like, I should get off for this film. And they're like, oh, I guess it's Christmas Day. I do get off because it's a federal holiday. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Let, 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 you want me to do one? Yeah, do one. Okay. Michael, Michelangelo B from three years ago gives it four stars. This movie was an inspiration to know that people that work for the post office, rain, sleet, snow, nuclear holocaust, and whatever situation will deliver the mail regardless. We need to make USPS great again. They need a national day to celebrate all postal workers in the USA and international day to celebrate postal workers around the world. Two people found that helpful. <laughs> wow. I mean, and mandatory watching of the postman, but... <laughs> By Costner. Um, yeah, I, th- I think they, they didn't really get – I don't think they got the movie if they think they want some mandatory. Yeah. <laughs> it should be dictated by the straw. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the ninth rule is one day a year we'll all watch the postman. <laughs> what are we going to do all these brands that are number eight? It's like, god damn it. Yeah. Uh, maybe they, they just add another uh, 10 rules so they can do 18. Um, <laughs> and then they they want to sh- people actually want to see the sound of music instead they get disappointed <laughs> here's steven daxon four years ago i'm sorry four stars from a year ago and here's this person has a different opinion than i do on that final uh fight scene <clears throat> i see some people grousing about the fight uh, the fight scene at the end between the postman and general buffalum i see people saying the fight stunk or that it had bad choreogra- choreography <laughs> All caps. That's the point. How do people miss this? I mean, they even underline it with dialogue where the postman says they're a couple of frauds because they are. Bethlehem was a copy machine salesman. What does he know about fighting in hand-to-hand combat? Same with the postman. Whatever he did before the war, he's not a fighter or a warrior. They're both 
actors playing a role for their respective groups. To have these two battle at the end in typical Hollywood fashion with them exchanging haymakers and dropkicks would have been terrible. I love the realism of the fight because the reality is that's what these two would just roll around on the ground wrestling each other because they're both just a couple of schmucks. Their sloppy end fight is one of my favorite parts of this very underrated flick. The Postman is supremely crafted cheese, much like Waterworld. Both of these better than Dancers with Wolves. Yeah, I said it. But we all know Open Range is the best film Costner directed, while JFK is the best movie acted in. So what they did before the... uh, I'm explaining this to the reviewer. What they did before the end of the world and the 13 years in between, you have to presume that they survived by getting into a few fights and getting out of a couple scrapes. So your entire... Your entire review is forfeit. And and potentially General Bethlehem has taken on other people who have fought him and won, including the guy who's cut him. Well, he cut the guy's – he yeah. won and won. We, that's also in the text if you uh-huh. watch the film. Uh, okay, so I have one from two years ago from Ibano Woodworks Incorporated, four stars. I saw this movie a long time ago. I loved it and am about to watch it again. Thank you, Ibano Woodworks. <laughs> yeah, that's that's insightful that you're going to watch it again. I'm glad you yeah, follow up that review it. with the second. Yeah. Hmm. Oh. Uh, you got anything else? I'm ready to get out of here. I got one more then. All right. Uh, Vincent G. Curley from two years ago says, Likely one of the most underrated sci-fi movies I have ever seen. Long and arduous at times, it had excellent acting mostly, and Kevin Costner does well as leading man and director. Very presumptuous and often ridiculous, the point is well taken as it as is the theme. It's a movie open to interpretation. In the long run, I gave it a chance. A futuristic Western, maybe? Your opinion counts. Five people. <laughs> How are people? Wow. Your opinion counts, Thomas. Uh, we just talked about our opinion for the last hour and 15 minutes. All right. So uh, Kevin Costner as director and star of The Postman in the real world, were he to have a side hustle, what would it be? I don't know. Something about these two films. I'm just taking like Costner as a, maybe not as a character, but as an actor. Because um, he, he's he's a little shady. I um, He's not very good at his job. Uh, how about this? Maybe I, I, for some reason, I thought he would work well as a treasury department agent uh-huh. um, assigned to like Silicon Valley Bank or maybe ah. work for Bear Stearns. Okay. I love it. Yeah. Uh, I think from this movie, just taking this movie, I think he would be a uh, YouTube libertarian talk show influencer that sells supplements during commercial breaks. And he would be very popular at it. Yeah. And maybe and he would, a, he would, I would the ghost his guest star would be a horse. He would have Bill the horse. Uh-huh. Yep. And um the ghost of Tom Petty. No, the bumper <laughs> music would be all Tom Petty. All Tom Petty. All the I bumper see music. It. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, All right. Well, um, how about this? Oh, you, uh, you, you have the six degrees, or are we still doing that? Six degrees of of Meryl Streep. Uh, from getting from Costner to uh, Banks. Oh shit! Um, I got a very quick one. I, I thought of this morning. I had a longer one that had, went through Man of Steel to get to okay. Scanner Darkly. Uh, to get to uh-huh. Hunger Games. 
but there's a faster way of getting there. That's uh, right. Okay. So uh, Yellowstone, directed by Taylor Sheridan, who was in uh-huh. season two of Veronica Mars as one of the Irish mafia. Veronica oh. Mars stars Ken Marino. Uh-huh. Who was in Wet Hot American Summer. Perfect. Wow. That's pretty good. Yeah, I'm going to have to do some research on that next time. I totally dropped the ball both times. The Yeah, I, I didn't realize that I was thinking about it and I was like, wait, what else has Costner done? Like, why is uh, he was in Man of Steel as George Kent. I think 3,000 mi- 3, Miles to Graceland would also be one because I had a a pretty big variety cast. Um, Kurt Russell, Courtney Cox, Christian Slater, David Arquette. Howie Long? What the fuck? Is that it? Are we done talking about Kevin Costner? Uh, I love him. I'll think I'll have a drink. Uh huh. (laughs) Um, Thanks to Eric for joining us. He uh, does the podcast Blood and Popcorn, and um, he's a world renowned, award winning screenwriter, etc. Thanks to Weird AI for the theme song. Uh, Thanks to Jack for the editing. And what are we going to be talking about next, Thomas? Oh, my goodness. Next week is going to be a D, so we're going to do Danny DeVito. Double D. Double D. We're doubling down on the Danny DeVito. We're watching Twins and Throw Mama from the Train. Hell yeah. Uh, That's going to be a good one. Uh, I'm glad we're doing Throw Mama and not um, that one with uh, Jimmy, the Jimmy Hoffa movie with uh, Nicholson. Which I think David Mamet wrote, didn't he? Shit, now we're getting into uh never mind. <laughs> Batman Returns? I don't know. Yeah, we'll talk we'll talk about it next week. Um thanks, Thomas. Here ended the lesson. Here ended the lesson. And I want everybody to know stuff is getting better. Stuff is getting better every day. You're really weird. You know that? <laughs> oh oh boy. <laughs> Uh, all right.